Luther Series 3 is a very dramatic, confrontational, perhaps conclusive season of TV that aired in mid-2013, two years after Luther Series 2. We're going to talk in depth about the four episodes of this series and also dig deeper into its creator, showrunner, soul writer Neil Cross than we did in our discussions of the first two series. Let's just dive right in. All Series 3 spoilers fair game, but nothing from beyond. That means nothing from Series 4, 5, the 2023 film The Fallen Sun, anything too specific from the prequel novel. So diving in now will be myself, Neo from Australia, as well as longtime Luther fan Tyler, and I think maybe in a sense longtime viewer in Giga. Gig, did you see these early series as they came out in the early 2010s? Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw uh, series one, two, and three as they came out. I was uh, eagerly on the um, live watching train for the finale of series one. Since then, I was sort of on the ride, and it wasn't until after sometime like sort of between series three and five that I kind of lapsed and became a sort of lapsed Luther viewer. Tyler, when did you watch the show? Uh, yeah, I was kind of the same. I watched it live, um, but I wasn't, uh, I was quite young, so I wasn't really super into the show or anything. I, I, I enjoyed it when it was on. And then it was a few years later uh, that I discovered it again. So I kind of, I, ha- I, have t- I have two or three phases of my Luther enjoyment. I want to start, as we did with discussing series two, and ask both of you, how is this series different from the last one, and from series one for that matter? And how do you think series three flows from the ending of series two? Remember series two's ending, Luther's big climactic confrontation with the RPG gamer Chaos Magic twins, or well, one of them anyway, culminating in a big epic suicidal fuel dowsing sequence in a truck where the whole city saw Luther save London from a sort of suicide bombing, homegrown, terrorism-type deal. What's different with Series 3, and how did it flow on from Series 2's ending? I think the better question really is what's not different. Uh, yeah, what's not different. It's it's quite um, pat. Uh, it's it's Luther that needs shaking up, I think. Uh, which is not necessarily bad, because the Luther that has come before Season 3 is good, um, often great, and there's some good, sometimes great stuff in Season 3. But there's nothing... Um, particularly engaging in a way that uh, seasons one and two were for me, and then seasons four and five were um, in other ways. Gig, what about you? I think in a lot of ways it's sort of a, it's a conscious return to status quo Luther almost, which it's it rings a bit strangely, because the end of series two had Luther seemingly in this happier place with a sort of um, not quite <laughs> surrogate daughter figure, but someone who was looking after. Things seemed to be on the up and up. Series two ended quite happily, I thought. So series three starts, and Jenny, she's, she's just... <laughs> disappeared into the ether and Luther's now living in this gothic ruin with you know a photo of his dead wife next to a pic of David Bowie and and it's like it's sort of like it's another kind of big finished box set of Luther type thing (laughs) same old same old but I would say the way in which overall it differs from series two is that by the end of series three it's trying to be a bit more uh I guess final it tries to be a bit more of a big statement so to speak i think it tries to almost mimic the ending of series one in some ways again and i think it, it tries to draw itself together at the end into a more of a big uh, conclusive climax which i would i wouldn't say series two did quite as much i say it starts off a lot like series two then in the second half it changes a bit to try and mimic series one again the two stories in series three are quite different aren't they the first story is so the first two episodes of series three is one thing and then the 
episodes three and four, that story felt to me like a... I mean, I know Idris Elba forever has been talking up the Luther movie. I was watching an interview today where, in a uh, 2013 interview about on the, on the Pacific Rim press junket for that film he was in. Uh, he was talking about, you know, we're getting the movie going and Alice, she's going to be back. This is 2013. And so he's all hyping up, you know, the series can move into movie form now. Let's come back with the real ratings and critical bang. I was wondering if it has helped the ball to start rolling on the movie front or series four at all? Uh, it's definitely solidified our intentions for sure, because it's good that, you know, we will have, we have been off the air for so long. And we, you know, there was a sort of, you know, worry that maybe the audience didn't want to see it again. And, and it came back with such open a welcome. So now it's made us a little bit more focused in on trying to bring in the script for the movie. And bring back Alice Morgan, I hope as well. Uh, Alice Morgan, she'll be back. And that took 10 years to do. But I think the second two-parter in series three feels kind of cinematic to me in it's so... It's not just the large stakes, because I think series two's finale also had large stakes with the city and everything, but also, uh, like Gig said, it kind of circles back around to series one in some ways, and that circularity always makes things feel a bit bigger, and it's just a kind of huge story, and I think it kind of confronts the nature of the show. The the kind of Batman-ish, vigilante, Tom Marwood figure, I feel like he's a... He and George Stark, who's like the cop trying to get Luther across this series, they both feel like mirrors of different aspects of Luther to me. So it just felt like a very kind of self-interrogating kind of finale. Uh, I, I was really wrapped through the second story in series three. But the first one, what do we think of the first story in series three, the first two episodes? I think some elements of it almost feel like Luther verging into a comic self-parody, I think, in some points. like some, Sometimes it's just like deliberately very funny. Like I love Luther comparing himself to Jamie Oliver. And then, you know, when, when it comes to the big confrontation with the killer in the second episode, <laughs> you know, uh, Luther, says this, Luther says to him, say something. And the guy's just like, ah, and charges at him. I mean, it's, it's very, it gets very ludicrous at points. It's this kind of almost send up of Luther as, as, a, as, a, as a show. I mean, it's sort of mildly entertaining, but it's another kind of rubbish serial killer who's deeply just <laughs> very pathetic and kind of, and also a bit two dimensional in some ways, too. Yeah, I feel quite the same. Uh, I, I think it's uh, kind of a, a standard day's work for Luther, which is obviously not something particularly interesting, is it? I don't, I don't find that this is that uh, Cross is doing anything really engaging with the character or any any kind of new take on on, on a serial killer or a, or a kind of crime. It's 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 just uh, Luther as is. It's the it's the Lutherist episode of Luther. So something I found funny during that uh, those first two episodes, particularly um, there's a point in the first episode where Luther's trying to investigate the case and then he gets something else dumped on him and he's like, okay, let's do both. And it, it reminded me of how Chris Chibnall writes his Doctor Who at times, <laughs> just having lots of separate subplots for the Doctor to work on. Um, but you know, on that note, like the, the sort I guess the subplot running through the first two episodes is also Luther interfering with the case of that guy who killed the online like cyber bully, kind of tormentor talk kind of guy with Luther kind of sticking his neck in and sort of possibly making things worse there out of some possible desire to maybe protect the guy who took the law into his own hands I, I think that that sort of subplot seems to be like the more interesting uh, aspect of those first two episodes compared to the um sort of serial killer fan who is also the son of the victim of the serial killer yeah I think for me the relative flatness of a lot of the first two-parter here it's compounded by 
Like, I know not everyone likes this, but something I like about Luther is that nearly every form of it is pretty different. Like series one is five or six individualish cases. Uh, and then series two is two two-parters. And then there was the prequel novel. So that's a whole different format. Then series three is two two-parters. Series four is one two-parter. And series five is like one four-parter. And then there's a film in 2023. Series two and three are the only times we get the same thing twice, pretty much, which is two two-parters. And I don't know, just structurally, it misses that Luthery thing to me, which is what have we got this time? And it's a totally different thing, which is maybe the feeling of, you know, same old, same old, just the Luther and the Ripley and the Force kind of thing that we get with some of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a conscious sense, I think, this time that Luther, the show, is starting to maybe run out of juice or run out of ideas, which I think informs where it ends up going in the second half of, of the series. I do think with the start of episode one in series three, it's interesting to me, like series two's ending, I know Tyler, you and I especially, uh, maybe rankled's the wrong word, but we noticed it's a really big deal. Like you'd think Luther would be a bit famous after that. Like he'd received some sort of accolade from London or something. Like he saved a lot of the city in the super public way. And then series three starts and I guess not. Yeah, yeah. It, but, and also series two started weirdly disconnected from series one to me. Like series one ends in such a climactic way. And then Paul McGann's mark is in series two and everything, but it didn't feel that linked with how series one ended to me. Whereas series three, it opens up and he's looking at a photo of Zoe from series one and he's looking at postcards from Alice. It feels a little more linked in that way. I think the show kind of has a perpetual problem with following up its own cliffhangers at the start of the next series. Like it'll end a series at one point and then it'll start the next series and be like, okay, we need to, we need to return to status quo somehow. And there, there might be some lip service to how the previous series ended, but not uh, a great deal. It won't feel hugely borne out of where they left off. And this is um, a result of the, uh, the comic book nature of the show, I think. It's, uh, it's, it's the result of Luther as Batman uh, and everything sort of resets uh, at the beginning of each season, and and yeah, yeah, you're right. That's, that that has happened uh, in every season. It happens again in this season. Uh, in the previous season, it was um, Alice in the in the psych ward, wasn't it? Uh, and yeah. Luther breaking her out within within sort of ten minutes of that first episode, and that, that's that. That's the end of it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not something I personally am against. I I quite enjoy that for, that mode of storytelling, um, but there there does often come a point, and I think I think for me the 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 hard reset of this season of of uh luther walking back into his uh, standard day's work he, he removes that guy from that from that garage and justin's got a, a bit of bit of a bit of bone in his skull and you know all in a day's work and he goes home and he looks at the photo of zoe and he looks at the card of alice and it's it just it feels sluggish it feels you, you go into it with, with a sense of oh right so we're just we're just back are we luther's back <laughs> great okay i think it doesn't help that the the side thing luther is dealing with during those first two episodes and sort of throughout with the whole um the the special unit with george and erin trying to investigate luther they're not very convincing as a threat <laughs> to luther i think is the problem they um george gets a lot of dialogue about how oh they unretired me i'm really badass oh i'm gonna i'm gonna get you luther but at no point does he actually become a, a convincing threat to luther nothing suggests i mean it's impossible to take him seriously there's nothing that suggests he'll be better at catching john out than anyone else to date so it, i mean it just and then they pretty much give up on it because they show him being a useless alcoholic later on i mean it's just like like why is this guy here it's just kind of an annoyance like a little gnat flying around luther's head one of the biggest fist pump the air moments of the whole show for me is marwood just shotgun blasting george stark out of the story 
<laughs> yes, although that in itself is almost like we're giving up on this character. Like we we don't have anything to do with him. Bye, you know. Stark is the um, is the um, Henry Madsen of season three, isn't he? Where you get you get three or four episodes in season one of Henry Madsen. Uh, and you think that maybe so, you know, uh, I think uh, you suspect that this is an arc that is slowly building into the finale and, and it's it's just kind of dropped. That's kind of what Stark is. In the promo for series three, Idris was talking up George Stark as like, oh, you know, he uses some of Luther's techniques against him. We introduce a new character, uh, Stark, who's basically, you know, sort of set up as Luther's arch nemesis and he is a formidable character and he's uh, very, you know, gun-ho on getting Luther and almost using Luther's, his own techniques, you know, I mean, I think that's what's going on here with David. He's so in Luther's face. And, you know, it's like a whole big cracked mirror type of thing. And, yeah, like, I feel like Tom Marwood is that quite successfully, like a cracked mirror of Luther and a reflection and an amplification of different bits of him. But George Stark is just useless. And it's like Gig said, he's this pathetic alcoholic. And even Aaron's like, why am I? you know, working with this guy is just such a failure. And Luther comes, like Luther catches them out. He like gets to their hideout and goes, wow, where's my code name? Yeah. And he just like humiliates them and walks away. It's a really pathetic kind of attack on Luther. Yeah, literally the end of episode two, they're running the shittest undercover operation in human history. <laughs> Luther just goes in there like, hey, I win, bye-bye. You, you lose, you suck. You know? <laughs> it's just, wow, okay. What was the point of that? But what do we think of Erin? She's the other half of this operation. What do we think of her in this series? Erin is the more interesting half of uh, the Stark Erin um, dynamic because we already know her. Yeah. Because she's already a, a, an established character from season two, and we already understand her relationship with Luther. Um, what Cross, I think, fails to do with Stark is give him any sense of threat or any sense of a relationship with Luther. Or I mean, what it's it's so unclear why he hates Luther so much as he does. It, it's, it's nonsensical that he has a, he has such a uh, he's, he's so hell bent on taking John Luther down when he's never met the guy before. And we've never met this guy before. We, we don't have any idea who, where he was working in the Met and what he was like. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. But Erin does have a personal vendetta. And she does have um, that need that she doesn't want to admit for validation from John that she's never received. And yeah. So that there is a, an interesting um, uh, vendetta that gives her justification for her actions. Yeah, and also Erin wants to do good on some level. Like in the last episode, we see her trying to try unsuccessfully like cover for Mary and getting shot as a result. I, I was very relieved that Erin survived at the end. Yeah, I was wondering like, surely they wouldn't kill her off like that, would they? No, they, she, she lives for her. But you know, throughout the show, she's um, she, you know, she's much more interesting than Stark purely because you know she has some sort of inner conflict. You know, she's kind of wavering back and forth on whether this whole stupid plan is uh, worth doing. Do you? Agree with me that she enjoyed kissing Ripley in the car. I think they both enjoyed it. I think there's, I think the way that the two of those actors play uh, that dyna dynamic from that moment on is uh, subtle glances at each other and, and looking at each other in a, in a particular way. Uh, and that's, yeah, that, that all happens after the kiss. And yet, in the last episode, Alice just casually drops that she thinks Erin is a lesbian. That was... Such a like what <laughs> of a moment. I was like, hey, excuse me, what? Come again? Yeah, I read that. I was going to ask you guys about that. Actually, I, I read that as as just a homophobic joke line. I don't read that as uh, a character trait of of Aaron's. 
I mean, I don't know. I feel like Alice is supposed to be, you know, the super smart, clever one, almost like the Doctor Who figure, the Sherlock analog. You can like point out things about people. So when she says that, it almost like um, it's like you know, in series one of Doctor Who, when Doctor's like he's gay and she's an alien. It reminded <laughs> me of that. Sort of like this thing of Alice being more perceptive. So almost like and yeah, it's sort of a gag. But at the same time, I wonder are we meant to take it somewhat seriously, like as a reveal about Erin? Like so, it, it was very, it was very puzzling because earlier on they seemed to be setting up that whole romance with Erin and Ripley, and so it just felt a bit like directionless overall. Like, what do you, do you really know what you're doing with this character? There's that exchange in the police HQ Erin and Ripley have, where Ripley's like, "Do you want to talk about this properly, like as human beings, like a drink or something?" And Erin's all kind of awkward because she's a very by the book, bookish, uh, not social, uh, charismatic actor. Like actor in the story, I'm not talking about the actor, actor, character in the story, then some of the others around. Uh, and that, that felt like a little flirtation being played up to me. Maybe even one of those humanizing moments you give a character you're about to kill soon. Uh, I'm meaning Ripley there, not Aaron. <laughs> yes, a death flag for Ripley, very much. Yeah. And that they have the, I, I like the little exchange where Aaron like pulls Ripley into a room and doesn't say anything. And so he says, Is this like a Darren Brown thing? She says, Who? mind reader mentalist reads minds and she's a bit flustered and you don't want to read my mind it's full of scorpions right now uh, <laughs> scorpion ian quoted Macbeth in series one as well didn't he yeah very very uh, successfully I, I really liked that line he says um uh he says something along the lines of um it feels like my brain's full of spiders or something like that so it's not quite the same line but it's it's hearkening it's hearkening to shakespeare yeah. what did you think speaking of like tension like that about Luther and Ripley's scrap uh, in the first two-parter when they fight in the office and Shank tries to stop it from happening. Uh, also, that was a good hero moment for Ripley, uh, getting the remains and not letting the remains be incinerated. It was nice for Ripley to have a, a win there. But it's, it's a win in a um, like quite a sadistic way, isn't it? In the, in the way that you as a viewer don't want it to happen because your, your sense of justice, or, or certainly mine, and I, I think the, the, the intent is... Um, more aligned with John's that Barnaby yeah. deserved the, 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 the freedom uh, to have, to have killed that person and got away with it. Um, so Justin succeeding in doing the by the book, um, morally right, according to the British justice system thing uh, is frustrating. It's interesting how we see a bit more of uh, Idris acting a bit of empathy or, affection at least uh, this series i think i'm thinking of with barnaby the dad who puts his hand in the blender that luther calls like we're talking about when he sits down with him in the kitchen after barnaby had a breakdown like luther looks really pained and like how he's touching his shoulder and reaching out to him and uh later in series three when he hears the tape where ripley really bigs him up you can see luther's eyes are like super touched and everything so that's an interesting aspect of the acting interested in series three yeah i think what well, another thing that undermines Ripley there is that when he comes to like, confront John and have a go at him, John was literally about to ring up the next victim of the other, the current serial killer. <laughs> and the fact that they have a scrap then instead of getting in touch with her means that she, you know, she dies. So it's you know just um, events conspiring to kind of sort of undermine any sort of sense of heroism there. It's all um, very <laughs> a bit, a bit of a mess. Although at the same time, um, the thing about uh, Luther protecting his ghost, taking the law into his own hands, that does seem thematically related to the second two-parter, which is all about, you know, taking the law into our own hands and being cracked mirrors of Luther's morality and such. Ripley, because this is his last go-around, he dies at the end, uh, Ripley's actor Warren Brown says of his time over the show that, you know, their first scene together where... I know Ripley's in the 
prequel novel, but his first scene in the show is, you know, him looking all awed, meeting Luther, talking about, you know, I've, I've lobbied to, you know, work with you. I'm your biggest fan or that sort of thing. And he's just kind of glowing with, wow, I'm actually working with Luther. Warren Brown says he was like that with Idris. Like he didn't have to act much there. He was very kind of wowed by him at first, but over time, like the characters, they got chummy together and, you know, equals and all that. Ripley's relationship, you know, it, it's built and built as he's worked with Luther and, they're, they're, you know, they've, they've worked together now f- for a while. His loyalties have been tested and this series, um, I think that the relationship is put under the, under the most strain that it, it has been through, throughout any of the series. Like, working with Idris has, has been fantastic, you know. Um, I kind of look back at the first series and the meeting of, of Ripley and Luther, the first instance was of this character who really looked up to, you know, somebody who was senior to him, more experienced and, and wanted to work with him. And it was fantastic for me because I was exactly in that, that same position myself, Warren, as an actor, you know. I was a really big fan of Idris, really keen to work with him and, and, and respected him. So the first meeting that you saw in series one of, of those two meeting, I just kind of played how I felt when I first met him as Ripley and Luther's kind of relationship and as they've worked together and that, that's got stronger so as, as us as, as kind of actors and friends. Uh, and so they had a very real life kind of progression with their characters. There's a lot of that with the show, hopefully not with Ruth Wilson, but uh, Idris Elba also says that he finds it hard to separate Luther and himself, how knotted up he gets in the role as well. I mean, I just love the depth of character, you know, and it's one of those characters that, you know, sort of like I know really well. I love playing him, but he's so absorbing that sometimes you know it's hard, hard to kind of like separate Idris from Luther when I'm playing him because Warren Brown's gone now since he dies here what, what did you guys think overall of his performance in the show but especially this series I think uh, his performance is a pretty good um, uh, manifestation of a character who's kind of the almost the, I don't want to say the straight man but just like, like, like the I guess the rock of sort of stability or like almost like plainness against which Luther is always contrasted. I, I think he does a qu- very like commendable job in terms of just being this sort of, um, they compare him to the puppy at one point in the series, don't they? I think he's always kind of the, the puppy, like simping for Luther covering for Luther. It's like, wow. Yeah. I, I, I think he, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything to, uh, like criticize it when it comes to his performance. I think when it comes to the character, I think each series, like in series two a bit and series three a bit as well, I think they're always kind of grasping for what exactly to do with Ripley and it culminates in them killing him off in, I think, ultimately quite a stupid way in this series, to be honest. I'm not I'm not hugely thematically satisfied with how he uh, goes out. But um, in terms of like the overall, I mean, it's just... Yeah, I mean, it, it's okay, basically. I'm just eh about sort of the whole thing. Wait, I want to I wanna ask Tyler... Uh, specifically what he thinks of Ripley's death in a second since Gig just expressed distaste. Um, But setting aside like the story thing of Ripley dying, just like in the structure of the show, I think it's really interesting because there are like pillars of Luther, like as a show, like there's Luther himself and there's Alice, who are the two huge biggest ones. But like in series one, we had Zoe and we had Ian and we had Rose. And Mark. And Mark and I guess Shank. And most of those got wiped out in series one. And then coming through to series three, we've lost Ripley. Uh, we have Luther, we have Alice, we have Shank. But everything else kind of underpinning the show is like the reoccurring big pillars is kind of gone. Uh, and I think that's interesting. I mean, we're not speaking about series four now, but it certainly puts the show in an interesting place to have to try and 
move on from next. I mean, I guess Aaron is alive, but yeah. What do you, what do you think about the show just kind of shedded its skin very quickly in terms of like main characters? In, in, in series three, something that it does to uh, mitigate the effects of that is um, increase the, the Benny screen time and, and the Benny characterization. Uh, and then, you know, that, that, that gets further established over time. I think there's almost a sense that the show having to... Uh, the sh- when, it sh- when the show kind of sheds its skin repeatedly like that, I think there is a sense that it's trying to keep itself uh, rejuvenated or like alive somehow. Like, okay, fuck, let's just, let's kill off, let's get rid of that character. <laughs> let's, let's do this. Almost in the sense that, because they don't quite know how to keep the status quo going without having some huge shock like Ripley dying and Luther being like bereaved again all over again. Ripley's death itself. Uh, Tyler, what do you think of the way he did? So he dies in that, Marwood, our Batman figure, has just, he's hanging the pedophile and the crowd's around. And so it's, you know, a whole big thing. And then Luther tries to save the pedophile and the crowd gets angry at Luther. And then Ripley, who comes in to help. Chaos and pandemonium. Uh, Marwood takes advantage of the chaos, so he runs away. Uh, Ripley manages to find Marwood. Uh, Ripley hasn't got a gun drawn or anything. Marwood's got his iconic shotgun drawn on Ripley. And they have a conversation. It's... Interesting. So their exchange is like, well, Marwood compliments Ripley. I saw how you waded into that mob. That was brave. Nobody could ask any more of you. So just back off. Ripley's like, if, if you let me go, this is all going to carry on and someone innocent's going to get hurt and I can't live with that. And Marwood's like, don't worry, that's never going to happen. No one innocent's going to get hurt. Ripley's like, you've made your point, Marwood. You've done your thing. Everyone's talking about you and the issues you've raised. You've done what you needed to do. You can stop now i'm a cop we're on the same side you're not gonna shoot me mate <laughs> what are you gonna do shoot me <laughs> <laughs> famous last words <laughs> yeah. yeah and he shoots him and it's a big it's not a cathartic blast like george stark got it's a tragic blast or is it a comic blast gig didn't seem that impressed with it tyler what do you think it's um i i think that the uh, the way it's shot no pun intended is um there's like a slow-mo uh, of, of him uh, being blasted back, which is completely different to the Sark death, which is really unceremonious and undignified. Um, so it, I, 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 it is, it is intentionally played as uh, as tragic uh, as it. I mean, it obviously would be. I, I do see it as that. Um, I um, uh, I was and am pleased with it. I'm, I'm pleased that it, uh, that the Ripley death came when it did. Um, by this point in season three, we've had about. Uh, at the end of season three, so we've had about 130 odd minutes of screen time, and, and nothing really has has happened. You know, there's there's not really been much drama for Luther. There's been serial killers and cases that he has to deal with, but you know, it's it's just been so far a show about solving crimes. Um, <laughs> so it's it's taken this long, like Sherlock. <laughs> it's it's taken us this long to get to a point where something has happened, um, and there's some kind of real conflict for John to deal with. Um, and I think killing Ripley was uh, something that had to happen. Um, yeah, I I have no strong feelings for or against the case in which it happened, um, or the or whether it should have been Marwood or whether it should have been uh, via a shotgun. But um, I do think that it came at the right time, and it did it did good things for the season as a whole. Yeah, I think I don't dis- I don't disagree with like the like the placement of it or like, the decision to ultimately do it. I just think the way it plays out is a bit strange. Like, I think. 
I think the, the bigger problem, I think, is my issue with Marwood's motivations for some of his actions. Like, his decision to actually just straight up, point blank, just load the entire the entire barrel into Ripley's chest right there. Uh, so it, it just seems to be a bit like, what? why Why did he do that? <laughs> why didn't he just do, like, the, one of the countless alternatives available to him? That, yeah, that's really interesting, because I actually think um, I completely see how this can happen. I can, I can completely track... How this, how uh, a man like Mar- Marwood can be motivated uh, on on nuanced levels, obviously on on the on the surface level, that uh, being that the, the need to avenge his wife, which is understandable, and then on the inner level, as Alice says in episode four, that he, he has a, a need to be loved and 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 respected. Um, so I I can I can understand him on that level, but I also uh, can completely see uh, the way in which one in that sort of situation can find can find themselves in the same way that Ian was in season one, uh backed into a corner again and again and again by their own actions and making things worse in trying to save themselves. Just the actual mechanics of the scene confuse me. Maybe I'm media illiterate here, but Marwood's got the shotgun and Ripley's does Ripley have a gun on him at this stage and he's just not got it out? What's going on with Ripley? I think he's just refusing to go away and leave Marwood alone. So, like, if Marwood had jumped the fence and ran away, like, what's going to... Is the fear just that Ripley's going to keep chasing him and then Ripley's going to... So is Marwood just trying to say, like, to stop, like, a meep-meep, ten-minute chase happening, I'll kill you unless you don't stop? Like, why didn't Marwood just shoot out his kneecap or something? Or, like, what, what was actually the fear of what was going to happen. I, this this might be my fault here, but I've always been a little confused just what was going on there. Worth remembering, he does take out Luther's knee later on. You know, he shoots Luther in the leg later on, so he's not against the leg thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I view it as a, a matter of principle. Uh, and I think the difference in shooting Luther's leg, obviously, other than the fact that Luther's the protagonist and it, it, it's not possible to kill him, um, I think... Uh, it's it's worth noting that Alice says to him, "Everybody hates a cop killer," and that's that's something that is immediately in his mind that he doesn't want to be known as the guy that's killed two cops in the process of doing his show trials thing. Why kill him at all? Why not just shoot his leg? Yeah, my, yeah, that, yeah. My my point was that I I see it as um, I see it as uh, a moment of of failure and shock for Marwood and. Um, him acting on on his on his principles, he he feels he feels uh, entitled to do what he's doing, and he feels that on a on a matter of principle, either back off or you will die. And he follows through with it, and he has that moment of um, of fear and and concern before he does it, and then he does it, and then he cries a bit, and then he runs off. I I can buy it psychologically, but more from like Neil Cross's perspective, I feel like. If Ripley had a gun drawn on him or something and was like, with better dialogue, but was like, Marwood, if you, um, you know, Marwood, I'm going to shoot you in the leg and then you won't be able to carry out your vigilante Batman plans. So, you know, what's it going to be? Like a standoff. I, maybe this is a terrible idea and it's better that Neil Cross. Was was Ripley carrying a gun or, or were you just hypothesizing? No, he wasn't. He didn't have one in his hand in that scene. Ripley's... Ripley's arms aren't even in his jacket pockets. They're by his side in the scene. So he's pretty defenseless and they're just having kind of like a moral debate there. I don't know. It's like, I don't not buy what Marwood does psychologically. It just feels like the scene could have been tightened a little bit. I can buy it as him like panicking and just doing something very like, he's just like, 
so in a moment of sort of weakness and panicking, freaking out, like, oh fuck, I just shot him in the, I just killed this guy. But I think they 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 play up so much how invested Marwood is in yeah. his own sense of moral goodness that what he's doing is good, that he won't harm the innocent. No one innocent will be hurt. I'm doing the good thing. I'm just taking out the bad guy. So the fact that he, you know, it, it's a huge thing for him to then just up and kill and murder this guy just for getting in his way. You know, I think Marwood's a really interesting. He's one of my favorite characters of the show. I think it's it's not just i mean it is kind of he's created out of luther like he's such a reflection of luther in so many ways but i also think the actor uh inhabits him really well the actor i looked him up he doesn't do that much work anymore he was a lead in that da vinci's demons show he was a lead on that for years but since he hasn't done that much work and i'm confused because i thought he was quite good in this like he he stands out to me among all the uh, villains of the show anyway psychologically i think he's got kind of an oppositional entitled narcissistic as tyler would say thing like gigs talking about his obsession with this is all going to go to plan it's not going to hurt any innocence i think he's got you see it more in the very last episode this very oppositional like if it's not my way then you know i'm going to break down and that's this can't be happening i'm in charge here kind of thing which is interesting but i think another big facet of his personality is the media public relations type of stuff like he's got the save dash caitlin website he's using an early version of twitter uh, do, well, it was contemporary at the time. He's using Twitter to like, you know, hashtag, do we hang the pedophile or do we save the pedophile? Like he's very, he seems media savvy or at least very media active in all those ways, uh, which is, yeah, why it confuses me he kills a cop because surely Alice isn't the one who clues him into, you know, that's really bad for your optics there is to kill a cop. I'm sure he realized that on some level earlier. So it's just like he's overwhelmed. Uh, it's such a bad choice to kill Ripley. I think if he hadn't killed Ripley, his plans might have worked out quite a lot better. I think the show had a sort of structural need to have Marwood and Luther in like more like big opposition. Yeah. So from that point onwards, we have Marwood stalking Mary at Luther's house and just shooting up Luther's house. I love the shot of him pointing the gun at the mirror and sort of like cringing <laughs> and wincing and just pulling the trigger. It's kind of one of those moments where the show kind of lapses or almost tips into comedy again. Um, but they, they have this whole thing where he sort of starts like being really bound up with Luther in particular. I think that's important for the whole thematic mirroring of the two of them. But at the same time, it's like, well, we're getting further away from the idea of Marwood as this, um, whatever the concept of him wants to be as this like public Avenger or whatever, and more as a sort of rival antagonist to Luther specifically. This is with Marwood again. We're, we're swirling around it. There's that exchange it's even like there's a there's a river or water whatever separating them it's uh, such a I, I like this exchange a lot where they're having the kind of moral debate on vigilantism and policing and everything and the you're we're not so different you and i type of thing which is why gig says you know structurally he needed to do something so bad they actually would get drawn into opposition but it's marwood saying one out of five murders are committed by men on bail luther's saying of course I know that. We all know that in the force. Marwood's questioning, why does nobody do anything about it? Luther says, because it's complicated. Then they both agree, no, it's not complicated. And so they're kind of getting this understanding. And more than that, they're getting agreement. Luther has to toss him his phone. You know, that drives a lot of the plot to come in his wallet. Marwood's talking about, well, they're talking about, they want all these bad guys locked up so they can't harm anyone else. Luther, surely you can't disagree with that. Luther says, not the motive, but yes, the means. Marwood says, you've never been tempted to administer a bit of personal justice. And Luther, uh, what's, what adjective can I use for his response? It's uh, ironic, perhaps, that he says, he says, I don't have the right to do that. 
And as viewers, we know, well, all through the episodes we've seen before, he takes things into his own hands constantly. Yeah, every day. That's, that's, how, he's, that's how he approaches the job. Yeah. And so then Marwood's, you know, kind of appealing, give me two days. That's all I need to make things better. And Luther's saying, I can't do that. But there's definitely a wavering there, isn't it? He's not like just flatly, no way, man, you're the bad guy and I'm opposing you. I think there's definitely a kind of, there's something being shared there. You know, Tom, you know, they're going to kill you. That's how these things end. Marwood has the very Batmanish line. Like, I died the day I came home and found my wife's corpse. You know, that sort of thing. Don't make me your enemy, John. We're on the same side. Luther says, I'm sorry you think that. It's a big, important exchange. I think there's lots going on there. Uh, what do we think of that exchange? I like how it encapsulates the bind Luther is in, in the sense that ultimately he is not one who actually respects law a great deal. He is constantly breaking the law. He's constantly taking the law into his own hands. He is constantly a hypocrite. But at the same time, he is so bound by the sense of, well, we have to maintain some kind of order or logic and or you know hierarchy of who is allowed to you know decide who lives and dies and stuff we can't just let things lapse into chaos but that of course is you know it's hypocritical with his own actions so anyway and that's the that's how luther gets into these situations where he's trying to save a pedophile and getting attacked by the angry mob which i just i just oh i I adore that sequence it's so it's so balmy and so bonkers i love just the utter heightening of contradictions to almost farcical degree stuff like that i really love it um i think that that sequence i think basically I think on the whole, it just shows that Luther is this figure who is just at the intersection of numerous contradictions and he's just stuck, really. He can't really do anything about it. I feel like the promise, well, the fulfilled promise, I guess, given the ending of the series of running away with Alice, it kind of hangs over this kind of exchange in an interesting way to me because is the idea that if or when Luther and Alice run away together, that they're just going to go holiday and work through all the countries and that's going to be their days or is the idea that they're going like luther can't keep away from solving things but you know to what extent is alice going to work with that or what sort of trouble are they going to get into what are they going to do i think it's interesting to wonder if he does leave the force What's he going to do? You know, in series two, they t- they used to sort of talk about that. I think Alice sort of offers a proposition to what they might do if, you know, if she ran away with Luther. And I think the, the implicit suggestion is there, maybe sort of, a sort of hedonistic kind of a voyage, but also kind of an illicit one. I think the promise is almost that if Luther were to leave and be with Alice, he would be able to indulge the thing that he actually is, you know, this beast of chaos, rather than a, cre- a true creature of law that he is, you know, LARPing as in the police force, if you see what I mean. So I think there'd be possibly some some uh, naughty crimes going on if he leaves with Alice. Yeah, I, I, I agree that it, uh, the implication is that they would be getting up to, to some kind of uh, criminal hijinks uh, in in the same way that Alice. That's what Alice does. Alice is uh, traveling. We we hear some um, some stories in episode four about um, things that she gets up to in Sao Paulo or wherever. Um, and I think were John to go with her, that would be the plan. And that's the, that's part of the lure for him, isn't it? That's that's part of the thing that um, forms his desire to run away with her because. Uh, because of, because yeah because he he, he does uh, he enjoys the chaos and the two of them together have this uh, this really great dynamic where um, they they in this in in the same way that uh, season one did a, a finale where um, the two of them plot to to 
solve the to solve John's problem. We do the same thing in season three, and the two of them love to work together and and come up with schemes um, and and plans to to do some slightly illegal activities to to get the outcome that they desire. So um, yeah, it, it's it's definitely the implication is that they would be getting up to. Uh, perhaps robberies and things, or maybe even murder. I, I do think that the end game for Luther, the character, is murder. So I, I think that's kind of what is always being teased. John as murderer. Yeah, in a way, she, she makes him worse, and he maybe makes her better, but not much better in some ways. I think she definitely makes him worse when they're together. They're like this sort of hybrid of sort of like the chaos and sort of uh, naughtiness. There's two perspectives on this sort of what Luther would do outside of the Force thing i want to hear from one is idris elba like contemporary with series three is asked about could luther ever find peace and he says no i think luther definitely wants to fall in love and you know sort of have some sort of happiness you know his characters are quite dark and gloomy character and you know i think having a bit of love in his life helps recognize that you know it's good to have to be in love and it feels good for him um, I think that, you know, Alice has, you know, been traveling around the world and they've kept in touch. He's still close to her, you know, very much where he left off, you know, I guess she's the one sort of antagonist that kind of like he cannot get rid of, so to speak. No, I don't think he'll find peace. No, I think he'll always seek people that do wrong. Uh, he'll seek it out and, and they'll seek him out, you know, he's just kind of got that energy, you know what I mean? People will come to him if something has gone wrong. So even if he leaves the, the force, I suspect that Luther will always be John Luther, whether he's a policeman or not. I think he'll always just be that guy that sort of can't help himself, but you know, seek those that feel they can just get away with being bad to other people. I think John will always do that. And if, if he does that for the rest of his life, he'll never, he'll never get peace. And so I think Idris's 2013 suggestion there uh, could spell trouble in paradise for uh, Alice and Luther running away. What do you guys think of Idris's pretty blunt, no, he can't find peace answer? I respect that um, in the same way, I've said this many times before, um, I, I really respect uh, Idris's um, connection with this character and he clearly understands him uh, very, very well and spends a lot of time thinking about how he operates. And uh, I agree that... Um, with what I think is uh, his sentiment there, that John is like two sides of a coin um, in the in the way that uh, I don't know if you've ever, ever met a, a, a police uh, officer who says who was who would, or, or a criminal who would say something like uh, in another life or had things done yeah. differently for me, I, yeah. I would have been a copper or vice versa, and that's kind of what John is. That they, they, he's he's um, he's just got the mind for criminality, and the the John that we see currently, the John that we see in the series is. Uh, the crime-solving moral justice, John. But there is a version of that character that um, is begging to come out at some point uh, while the show is on air. Um, and I, I, yeah, like I said, I think that's I think that's what is always being alluded to. Yeah, I think Elba is very on base when he says that Luther can't, can't really find peace because he doesn't. Ultimately, I think part of the thesis of this series in series three is that Luther isn't really doesn't really want peace. Uh, you know, he he tries to set up this whole nice little life with this you know, nice little normal girl Mary, but at the end of the day, what he chases after the, in the end is you know the 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 madness, uh, the the thrill, the, the the chaos, and I think the ending represents a sort of 
a final embrace of some kind of warped self-interest on Luther's part, finally, because he's been sacrificing so much of himself for this weird cause, this kind of saviour complex that he has. And at the end, he's finally saying, OK, I will throw off the coat. I will say, fuck it. I'm just going to do something for myself now. I will chase what I really want. There's an interview with Neil Cross from 2011. It was actually about the prequel novel's release. But there's an answer in it he gives that touches on these kinds of ideas of Luther's characterization and specifically what Luther could or couldn't do that wasn't the police force. He's a man on a very short rope. I, I like the idea that the, the notion of the trouble detective is not unfamiliar um, from both literature and the screen. Uh, but I like the idea of somebody who's troubled not by the consequences of the job chafing against his personal life, but somebody who's involved in what he sees as kind of really moral process. That it's got less to do with law and order, where John Luther is concerned, than, than with uh, pure notions of right and wrong. He almost would have done well as, as a priest. That's the, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a, a, fair, a very, very accurate summation of his, of his essential character. And I think he would have been he would have been happier as a priest and more suited to that job. Sort of a Savannah roller. Yes, yeah. uh, uh, but he's kind of he's disqualified, I think, by it. Although it's something we didn't explore very much in the show. It's something I wrote about a lot in the development of the show. In that he's, he's a man who, who desperately wants there to be form in the universe and def, you know, desperately wishes there were some kind of moral order to the universe, but doesn't feel able to believe in God. Who's this American voice? It is Connie Martinson an American writer and TV host who's hosted the syndicated television show Connie Martinson Talks Books on public TV for for a very long time. I love the way Cross specifies that something that um, was part of his formulation of the character was the idea of uh, form and binary in the universe. And I think that's, that's, that com- that's the, the dark matter thing, isn't it, in season one? Priest, moral order, God... That 2011 interview, Gig, what are your thoughts? In some ways, it seems quite different from what we were talking about just now, about Luther being this kind of guy with criminality in him, in a way. But also, I think generally, the idea of wanting there to be form in the universe, a moral order, I think it is in some ways a desire for control. And I think that is related to the impulse towards all of these (laughs) kind of law-breaking, sometimes quite cruel or controlling behaviours that Luther displays. I I think... In a way, is this um, this need for things to just go his way almost, for things to make sense and for things to like come together in a way that he can understand. I think the things are related. I mean, I suppose in a sense, it's ironic. We were talking about him being a like kind of a criminal in another life, and Cross talks about him being a priest in another <laughs> life. Well, we all know being a priest and being a criminal are not you know mutually exclusive. You know, <laughs> as uh, Stephen Moffat might agree. And um, yeah, I think so. While these two interpretations they might seem sort of diametrically opposed, but I think they are they have more in common than they initially appear to. I think Tyler was saying that the moral order stuff kind of connects in with. Very early in series one, the talk about black holes and kind of cosmic nature of the universe and whatnot, that seems sort of linked, these big cosmic ideas of what runs the universe or doesn't run the universe. And I guess Luther yearns for something to run it, but there's nothing there. And then maybe that's the narcissistic drive that I can be the... It's it's like Doctor Who's Twice Upon a Time. Maybe there's just a bloke. Maybe there's just Luther. And that's the moral order of the universe. Yeah. 
I think with um, detective shows where you have characters trying to deal with incredibly dark, grotesque murders, chaos, criminality, serial killers, all sorts of cruelty and just general human evil, I think it's that those... Um, those events and the things that they're dealing with kind of seem to reflect this uh, uncontrolled, ungoverned universe, like, or existence. I think there is something existential about it that is always confronting, you know, the, the detective figure in those scenarios, which is what puts them onto this whole existential mindset thing, which is why in Luther we have this, um, this preoccupation with these incredibly dark serial killers, you know, manifesting as, like, uh, sort of Luther's opposition to this chaotic universe that he just wishes would make some kind of sense. You know, th th that's kind of the, that's why the detective genre has so much of this kind of cosmic horror kind of thing to it, like true detective, you know? I see in interviews a lot, Neil Cross, people will like ask him, what's your deal, man? Why are you so messed up? And he has to kind of laugh it off and like assure him I'm a normal person, trust me. <laughs> you know, I, I do, I get that sense with Cross. There are some, Right, or most writers who you who you think you, you see people say, "Wow, that's so messed up." How did he come up with that? And you think, "Well, it's, you know, it's his imagination. He's a writer." But there's something about Neil Cross. There's, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether he's a very fearful, paranoid guy, or he's got a, a dark streak to him. There's 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 something about the things that he writes that um, I do think it's paranoia um, based on the, the occult, the, the occultism stuff. I, I think that he's he's got some. Um, uh, some some deep seated anxieties about things. I think that's what it is. But he's yeah he, he's he's a he's a very specific type of uh, horror writer. He's a very scared man. <laughs> yeah, scared of Idris. I think this, the same way that someone like Moffat writes about like sexual and masculine bravado so much. Some of that, so much of that oh. is born out of. I don't mean to psychoanalyze, but like I mean he's he writes shows about himself. Look at coupling. So much of that, his like avatar character is focused on like sexual insecurity. I think it's a common thing what a writer is insecure about. They amplify like the opposite scenarios or like the heightened or worst case scenarios into their dramas or their comedies. Yeah, I, I, I joke about about Cross being scared of being bullied by Idris, but I, I think that, that comes from the way that he writes. He, he does write as a, from a, a fearful perspective of... Uh, it, it's it, Luther is kind of like Courage the Cowardly Dog mm. where uh, anything and everything can be scary I think the teasing with Cross and Luther Cross and Idris I know Idris says he mixes himself and Luther up but we shouldn't <laughs> the teasing between Cross and Idris I think uh, it's it's an endearing thing just because Idris has been talking about wanting to do a film forever and it sounded like a pipe dream for so many of those years and the fact it's actually happened is just it's charming it's funny and I think it's because Idris so clearly likes Neil Cross. Like he always is complimenting his writing. He's always talking up how dark and scary he can write or how he was stunned by the scripts the first time he wrote them. Like he clearly loves Neil Cross in his writing. So the idea of him like, <laughs> like playfully bullying Neil Cross to get a movie going, it's not out of like disrespect for Cross, it's out of the opposite. It's that I really want to do more of this. Get me more of this ASAP. <laughs> yeah. It's well the movie, it's hard because it's like a Netflix movie. I guess it's gonna be hard to quantify is it a hit or not, because it's such a different thing, uh, those movies on streaming. But I hope it's goes I hope it performs like they want it to perform. I hope it's a big deal. I'd be surprised if it doesn't, to be honest. I'd be more surprised if it doesn't succeed. I think that even though um Luther's been latent in the British consciousness for quite a few years now. I think that it's always in the back of people's heads. Everybody knows Luther. Yeah. Everybody knows Idris Elba. It's, it's something that, as long as there's good enough marketing for it, 
if people, as long as it's on the top banner of Netflix, as long as the BBC is always talking about it, people will talk about it. It's, it's, the writing is a pretty interesting, uh, series two and three were very similar. And then series four shot up quite a bit. And then series five shot up quite a bit more again. And so that's increasingly long breaks between series, but the show is clearly, it's not getting less popular. It gets more popular over time. Yeah. And it is, it really is a, um, a cultural, uh, marvel. In, in the sense that even people that haven't seen the show are aware of the, they have the image of what, what John Luther looks like in their heads and, and, the, and the silly little car that he drives and, and what the show is kind of about. I think, I guess it's just boyoed by the star power of Idris, which just continues on uh, in the intervening years as well. It's kind of a symbiotic thing there. Yeah, it's a huge part of it. Yeah. But I, I think the, um, one of the things that Cross or, well I, well, I say Cross, I'm not sure whether this would have been uh, so much crosses domain, but one of the things that Luther really gets right, the production of Luther really gets right, is the aesthetic symbols, uh, the, the the car and the coat and the tie. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, Idris Elba has a very distinctive look anyway. He's a really tall, uh, very handsome guy anyway. Yeah, but there there, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of symbols that I associate with Luther. The, the Alice's red hair, the color red in general. There, there are many things that I associate with the show. I think London is so the show is London as much as it is Luther. And that's, yeah. I don't know how clear it is to Brits, but to non-Brits, uh, that's very loved. Like Americans love that. I know Commonwealth people love that. Seeing London is cool. People people like that. Yeah. I think the reason that um, the British people, uh, myself for sure, and the, people, the, the, the British people that I know that have seen Luther like uh, the way that London is in Luther is because it, it is the murky... Um, East London, South East London, the, the, the you, know, you know, not Central London, um, the, the kind of the grimy, dirty, deindustrialized, post Thatcher London that everybody really knows. Everybody really knows that's what London's like. And as a tourist, that's not the place that you go. And as somebody that doesn't live in London, you don't go to the, you go to you go to Central London, you do the nice bits, and that's it. Because why would you want to go to the nasty bits? But everybody that lives in the area or around the area is aware that you know the 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 um, the murderers don't exist and, the, and the, the comic book nature of the show doesn't exist. But that image of London is real. That's not something that they've hammed up for the screen. That That is how London proper is. It's like there's a verisimilitude to it. People might not know they're missing from other London shows, but when they get it in Luther, it feels uh, scandalous or like intoxicating or just novel, I guess. Yeah. I think also with the promotion of the Fall on Sun movie, I've had people have like said that to me, like, oh, isn't that interesting? That big photo of Idris trekking through the snow in his Luther costume. And it's like, oh, it's not London. And for people to be wowed at a show not being somewhere, it has to have been really successfully tied with somewhere in the first place for its absence to be a big deal. So I think that's interesting with the film, the fact it's not in London. It just kind of emphasizes how much London is part of the show. Yeah, yeah. Th- this This series three, it's quite scary, I thought, a lot of it. There's... The uh, episode one of series three opens with the guy under the bed. Uh, it's very listen, isn't it? A guy like grabbing from underneath the bed. Like that's a very kind of primal childhood horror. And then episode one's ending, well, nearly the ending, the action kind of ending is this pretty terrifying closing sequence with the cat in the ceiling and the husband goes up to investigate and the killer's like shrouded uh, behind and then he attacks him and then the husband bloodied like falling through the roof and the wife seeing it, it's just 
it's pretty terrifying because it's so tied to uh, what I know Neil Cross talks about a lot, the fears of the home being invaded or you, you, you not being safe at home. I thought those were all pretty uh, scary. What did you guys think of those sequences? Also, the house, it's, it's one of those houses that's like, we had that big wide shot and you can see entirely into the house, like from outside, which that alone scares me. Yeah, yeah. It's not a very um, private home anyway, is it? Uh, yeah, it, this is the scariest uh, that Luther has been so far and perhaps um, has been so far up to up to uh, the upcoming film. Um, and I, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, real, a real sense of body horror to um, the, the, uh, the head coming out of the ceiling and the, um, the, the fact that he's knocked out for a second and, and his wife screaming, staring into his eyes and his eyes open. Uh, yeah, yeah, really horrible. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to the serial killer scenes, a lot of the times, I, a lot of the time in Luther, I find them kind of I can take or leave them. But I do think the element of, of them that I like is when they get weird. So like when the killer is behind the, the plastic and looks like a mannequin almost, or or you know the, the shot of the guy kind of <laughs> crashing through the ceiling, covered in blood. I think uh, when they really um, have some fun in terms of the imagery, I think that's when it gets quite de- delightful. That's sort of the the sort of like the, the comic book imagery and sort of almost surreal uh, sort of horror kind of penetrating through. I think they, they have a lot of fun with that. And I think that is kind of a distinctive flair that Luther has. There's an imagery thing I really loved. That's actually the actual very ending of episode one of series three. So it comes after that sequence with the big easily seeing in-house and the home invasion and everything. And after that, we go to these shots of London. And firstly, we see it's one of those shots where you can see in all the windows of like the tall building. And so you can see into everything there and then we change perspective and we're looking on Luther and he's looking out over the city. And there's a couple of things I want to talk about there. One is that one is that it is so much like Blade Runner. We've got this piano kind of score going and then this very blue city behind him and then a character like stepping out on a smoky balcony. And I swear, I don't know if that's an intentional reference to Blade Runner, but it evoked it so much to me, uh, which was pleasing just like aesthetically. And then also it's a very (laughs) kind of Captain Jack in Torchwood type thing. Like Luther's standing out over like a tall balcony and he's looking over the city and we can literally like voyeuristically see into all these windows similar to like the scary home invasion stuff with the last sequence where we can see into right all these places and so luther's like the city's protector uh looking out like captain jack across the city and we can see into everything and it's all blue and the piano's going and then mary comes out i found it a very engulfing kind of sequence i don't know if it stood out to you guys at all but i I was quite enraptured with it they do like stuff where luther climbs up and is quite high up don't they like there's a sequence in episode two where he climbs on the van and sort of looking out over everyone yeah yeah uh, it, it's funny that um, this is John's go-to thing after Schenk tells him to leave the office for the night. His, his 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 go-to instead of being able to actually protect the city is doing the symbolic thing where he feels like he's protecting, that he's watching over the city. Yeah, because in earlier series we had him and Ian standing up, you know, over the top of the city, and then I guess even when he was obsessed with where Manson fell, that's still being in a really high up spot. He likes the verticality, I guess, it feeling. Being on top of things, I guess it's also—it's like I'm looking out and protecting, and it's so it's kind of a narcissisticy thing, but it's also kind of a policey watchfulness thing, and I guess he just feels comfortable up high as well. Yeah, it's an interesting trait, and it also just looks good visually, of course. Yeah, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the highlights of Luther are when they make the the world feel a little bit unreal. 
So like this, you compared it to Blade Runner, for example. I love those um, infusions of like different genres kind of coming in, and the mm. the city not quite feeling um, realistic, but more like a, a place of fantasy, like all the gothic vibes, like Luther's ridiculous kind of vampire castle that he lives in, and all those things. I think those are kind of the things that make Luther uh, fun. I know the the director of the first two part of series three did all of series two and one episode in series one, but I felt the, the visuals here. Uh, caught my attention even more he did so much stuff where the camera felt very active and kind of not literally point of view but very like in kind of Luther's perspective it was moving around a lot like he did lots of the great epic London shots as well but I felt it was very active it was moving around we have so many of those like tracking shots where like Luther walks through an office and like we stay in the one perspective I love all that because I just feel like the camera is really getting you in Luther's brain. Like you feel kind of harried the way he does as we're in the same shot, but he's moving over here and then he's dealing with that and then he's dealing with this. I, I, the, I feel like the camera work does a really good job of uh, kind of aligning with Luther's own perspective in the show. A lot, a lot of the show comes together. Like there's bits of it that don't work, but just aesthetically, I think it works on a level. Not every show like this does. Uh, I liked also another episode, one thing, uh, when, when Luther and Ripley are investigating that guy, guess he liked to sit in a room and slag people off on the internet guy was a troll <laughs> and then what is this nazi russia there was there was some fun stuff in that first episode <laughs> yeah. just generally in the show in this series across both the first and second stories i like the sort of like camp sort of pseudo black mirror kind of rubbish internet uh, kind of approach to it like the, the troll or like the hashtag hang him like hang the pedo.com click <laughs> this link so sort of very like old early internet kind of vibes it's very fun well i think cross is genuinely interested i think in this stuff he doesn't fully understand some of it but i like that he's interested in this intersection between media and vigilantism and social media and everything like shank says he doesn't understand social networking but they all talk about it a lot and like you know in series two we had the live webcam killings with the punch and judy killer and then in series three we have like marwood advertises you know my website's coming online in two hours and then there's votes and there's like streams and everything i like that even if he doesn't get it maybe with the same verisimilitude someone more attuned to the technologies might i like that he is actually interested in it and he's not like dismissing it he's trying to the contemporary and actually understand how it intersects with crime and stuff i i think it's endearing it also adds to the sense of luther being slightly out of time i noticed in the first episode of this series he, he's making these 80s like boomer references that people don't understand you know he's like his favorite you know music and shit i think that, that that's quite an interesting aspect of him like he's not he's not exactly a modern kind of figure yeah he he does seem sort of um he has this nostalgia he's kind of he's not down with the kids which is kind of an interesting position for like the hero of show to be in I have found myself thinking before there, there should uh, or there, there ought to come a point where Luther, the character, that, where, where John Luther realises that he's uh, out of date, that he's that he's had his day and that the world has moved on and the police work has moved on and his approach to things is is just is not viable anymore. So I, I think that's uh, an, uh, an approach that he feels out of date for 2010. So he, he certainly, I think, will feel out of date in 2023. Well, I know the uh, the 2023 film, the Andy Circus antagonist is meant to be some sort of cyber stalking expert or something. So it'll be interesting to see if this sort of stuff gets confronted more there. Something else I like in series three is, you know, when Luther goes and he busts the operation against him, Ripley's there and it's like awkward. Ripley, have you betrayed me? And then Luther listens to the tape and it's, 
Luther is the bestest detective ever and I love him and I defend him and everything. And Idris is, gets to like the surprise and like the joy on his face. And then the start of the next episode, he's so warm to Ripley. He's inviting them in <laughs> so he can meet Mary. Of course, that's setting up plot stuff to happen later that they know each other. But it's just there's so much love there. And he flat out says, uh, you know, that it's his mate. He's my mate and I love him. What do you think of the very warm Luther towards Ripley after he hears the tape? I think it's really sweet. I like the the effect that Mary has on him, um, and I like the I, I like the uh, that his ego has been stroked a little bit by Justin, and then you know he, he got to spend the night with Mary, and he's he's got like a a nice pixie girlfriend as uh, Alice refers to, her. and and uh, this is this is John at his happiest probably ever, um, where he he gets to have his his friend and his girlfriend. Um, and it's 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 quite fun. It is a it plays as a funny moment um, with him inviting him into the home and uh, Justin and Mary sort of being a bit <laughs> um, hello right and <laughs> and John trying to sort of force these two together like these are my two favourite people in the world yeah. to meet. And there's something inherently quite entertaining whenever John is happy because he spends so much of the show being this angsty, brooding, you know, dark, tortured soul. So like whenever he's, it, it, there's something very strange and uncanny when he's being bubbly and happy and cracking jokes and kind of being silly. It's, it's extremely entertaining. So yeah, I, yeah, I love that. Although I, I found just the sheer, the sheer simping of Ripley on that tape. I was like, oh my god, dude, <laughs> what the fuck? How can you just, how can any, how can you be so devoted to just covering up everything bad Luther's ever done? It's like crazy. Like just, 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 just the the, the way the way in which it really drives home how Luther has been enabled by everyone around him, just never, ever, never, ever holding him accountable. Really quite impressive. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel very heroic. The, the, um, Justin, come in. That scene reminds me a lot of, uh, the Capaldi and Clara dynamic that Moffat did sometimes where, where Capaldi would smile at her or say a nice thing <laughs> or give her something and, and she, and, and she go, why are you being nice? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, it plays the, it's the same beat. Yeah. And he graduates to Justin. You've got to move on and make little Ripley's of your own. But I, I read that as I think Tyler. Did you read that as you've got to make kids of your own? But I read it as you've got to go be a. You've got to have my rank, and you've got to have your own little adoring fans to follow you around. <laughs> oh, that's 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 really interesting. Yeah, no, I did read it as kids. I read it as like you know, get move up the ranks in the job and have little. Little, little baby Ripley's with somebody, and and well, it can be both. Uh, yeah, and it, I suppose it can be. Yeah, I read it that way. I think because um, I was expecting something to happen with the Grey uh, story, so I, I I do believe that the intent there was was for uh, you as viewer to make the connection between Justin and Grey, and Justin rising in the ranks and settling down with somebody and having kids. Yeah, I would say that, that came off to me when um, he was saying talking about moving up the ranks and have your little Ripley's. It, it, it did feel a lot like he was talking about simulate the relationship that uh, Luther has with Ripley, <laughs> but with Ripley <laughs> yeah. in the Luther position and <laughs> having his own Ripley's. That's how it felt to me, almost in the sense that Ripley being like a surrogate son to him in some bizarre way. Mm, yeah. The Mary stuff goes south pretty quickly, though, because George Stark and Erin show her a bunch of files and they meet out in public. How did your wife die? Uh, we should stay apart. What do we think of Alice's analysis of Mary, where it's that Mary's what you want to want, not what you actually want, which is me. You want a... But what, what is Mary? She's a very accepting, like she doesn't mind that John still loves Zoe. She thinks that's normal and not a problem. I don't think she's boring the way some characters are, but she's 
kind of not dramatic. What do we think of Alice's analysis? I, with, with the, the Mary and John dynamic, I, I find it really um, genuine and sweet and, and, and realistic that um, she says to him, you still speak with love in your voice. And he very openly admits, yeah, I do, yeah. And she likes it. And there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong. They, neither of them feel the need to hide from each other the way they feel about that. Yeah, it's nice that Mary is down to earth in a way. It's not necessarily like a boring person. She's just someone who d- doesn't bullshit around and doesn't. Uh, I guess like she's not like judgmental. She doesn't have. She doesn't have this need to like control Luther or do anything in particular. So uh, he feels he can be himself around her because she isn't sort of. Um, yeah, she, she is sort of accepting in that way. But also, you know, when it comes to actually. When, when it comes to the nature of Luther having all this kind of madness and chaos around him, that sort of kind of ruins their relationship as soon as it enters the equation. The way that Alice is, is um, she, she as a character, is like the character that can see through the, the matrix of the show's universe. She, she, can, she can discern anything and everything and uh, read out. She, she, she acts as narrator um, and can read characters in a, in, in a way that uh, it's just like a cross stand-in or a viewer stand-in. Um, and so, and so the 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 conversation that she, that she has with John um, about Mary is, is like uh, bursting his bubble, um, and you can kind of see it. That's that's definitely the way that it's played. You, you can see that in in John's face in the way that, you, that that she's talking about Mary. That he kind of is is hurt by it and frustrated by it, but rec- but understands it and recognizes it. And you can tell by it, uh, in the script as well that you know there's not there's not an instance where um, John tries to rebuke her opinion that it would never work with Mary and she's not even what you really want she's what you want to want I think what I would have liked is um maybe rather than maybe if there were more episodes in the series maybe rather than the whole Mary gets shown the file and she's like oh my god Luther did you really do all this stuff I would have been interested to see how Alice's like uh, assessment of Mary would be would show itself to be true like if we actually saw that relationship like organically unraveling itself and like that Luther's kind of uh, sort of narcissistic problem kind of coming in because I feel like it he almost doesn't get to like Alice says, okay, this would never work, and we just have to accept it. We don't really see like the almost a proof positive of that, which is I think it's kind of a shame. But I think it would have been nice to see like the see it how it would spool out naturally by itself. But at the same time, I think I don't think it's uh, particularly off base. There's a couple of Alice characterization things I want to talk through. Well, first, some stuff Ruth Wilson herself said. I think Alice is really um, loyal to Luther because she there's an affinity with him. Um, which she's never had with anyone. And it's a cat and mouse game between the two and she desperately misses that from her life. And I think Luther probably misses it too. And it's always the idea of what if, if there's something more. And I think that she, she cares for him deeply, actually, and she's never done that before. So she's um, willing to take risks and to come back and protect him. And also she wants to get what she wants, which is him. And can't really bear the thought of him existing in a world where she doesn't exist or she's not present. She sort of feels that she is essential to his life and he is to hers. The last time you see her, Luther has obviously helped her out, helped her escape. And she's gone off, because she's on the run, she's gone off to various places around the world. And you get the sense that she's been sending information back to him, telling telling him where she is. Um, And she's always said to him, you know, why don't you join me? We're, we're equals, we are similar beings. And I think she's coming back to try and lure him out again. And knowing 
what he's been up to and the situation he's in and how many other people have lost their lives, including his very close friends. She's like, now's the time to leave. This isn't the place for you. Join my fun world. It's much more interesting <laughs> to live this side of the law rather than that side. I, it's a complete joy working with Idris. In comparison to a lot of people I've worked with, or, you know, it's always very hard working with anyone else after you work with him because he's so easy. We've got such a rapport. There's such an ease with chemistry and what's there. And he's, he's very natural and changes it every time you work with him. Every scene is different and every take is different. So it always feels fresh and new. And I think the two of us, we kind of giggle a lot on set. There's a lot of kind of, we just find it hilarious and we find this sort of relationship hilarious. So there's a joy to it and an excitement and a slight hysteria over <laughs> the silliness of it. But also, you know, we, we really enjoy each other's company. We're good friends. So it sort of, it works. So that's Ruth's take on Alice. Any thoughts there first? I think the affinity between them is very clear in the show, even though like the, the nature of what that is, is kind of, uh, it's always kind of, um, amorphous like it, it's like a it's sort of an unspoken kind of unspeakable sort of undefinable kind of complicit nature between them it's so, something in both of them draws them to the other and it's that that sort of magnetic ambiguity that makes it so interesting my favorite thing with alice this season is so alice says she's been in berlin and she's got the passports ready for luther to run away with her and everything and they have this conversation where she says she got married does it add a tingle of the illicit to the conversation. Uh, I got married to Bertrand at a conference in Sao Paulo. He was intensely intellectual. Sadly, he passed away. Some little girls grow up wanting ponies. I always wanted to be a widow. (laughs) And I find that all totally believable. Yeah, Alice could have been off in Germany. Yeah, she could have married some intellectual guy. She probably would have liked the intellectual engagement. Also, wanting to be a widow, that's very her. Uh, the circumstances of this Bertrand's death are left vague, but you wonder, don't you? So that's all pretty typical Alice characterization. That's not surprising at all, any of that. But the really interesting thing is that later it gets undercut. Luther says, I saw the receipt for your boots. You've not been in Germany all this time. None of this Berlin bullshit. You've been in London for weeks. And so she's kind of deflated and she admits, I wanted something you and so luther tries to bring up mary and she's like get real you know that's not a real thing uh you and i are and it kind of trails off there i love that alice kind of gets pierced it's more human kind of there she's like lying to big up herself it's like a classic x thing isn't it oh i've been great i've been often been with this person who's better than you know he's (laughs) i've been off with this really impressive person and i've been doing this and i've been there and i've been that and you know all these great things Oh, no, actually, I've been trailing around uh, thinking about you. What do you guys think of that stuff? And also, so do you believe she Bertrand was real at all? Do you believe she went to Berlin and just came to London earlier? Or do you believe none of that Berlin stuff happened? What's your read on all that? I, I take that line, um, uh, again, to reference uh, Moffat, Doctor Who, and uh, also because, uh, Gig, you referred to uh, Alice as, as being similar to Doctor Who as a character um, earlier. I, I do kind of take half of the anecdotes that that, sh- that uh, Cross sprinkles in for Alice with a pinch of salt in the same way that Moffat likes to do with his Doctor Who, where the, they will talk about pre- prior adventures they've had, or in Alice's case, maybe prior murders. And you, you kind of have to think, maybe this happened, maybe this didn't really happen. It's just a, a fun, enigmatic thing that Alice likes to do. And 
Cross likes to do for, for Alice. Um, I love that what it sets up, though, is that um, Luther can read Alice in, in the same way that Alice can read Luther. Luther sees through her, um, and he's he's capable of recognising... Um, I mean, obviously, it's uh, the, the, it's it's quite a um, he, he he uses a pro- quite a proactive approach to discover the truth. He uses a detective approach where he finds a material piece of evidence to disprove her. But I think what really is is being said here is that John can read her. John John understands her in the same way that we see time and time again every time Alice crops up in the show that she reads John, and frustratingly um, to, to 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 John frustratingly. Um, uh, explains to him who he really is, it, oftentimes in ways that he doesn't want to hear. In this case, John gets to do the same to her. He gets to prove her humanity to her, that, that he not, that he sees her in a way that nobody else sees her and she doesn't want to be seen. Yeah, the fact that Alice is trying to hide from Luther somewhat, the fact that she's here like specifically for him and she's there out of a desire to, to see him, to whisk him away, I think that's, that is quite interesting because she's, she's always this character who is hiding like the, the vulnerabilities that she may have somewhat. She's always putting on this, uh, <laughs> this sort of um, front. So it's, it's really, I think it, it shows how close Luther actually is to her heart that she didn't really want to like give away just how focused on him she was. That she's kind of projecting this idea of, oh, I'm just this mischievous adventuress and I've just stopped by to help you, you know, in your in your <laughs> your, your uh, pitiable state that you're in. But you know, the the truth is that no, she is here specifically out of it, like an interest in him specifically. Like, it, it's just that really interesting thing. It, you know, it gives her more of a, a dimension. I think it puts her. Um, it puts her on a level that's more interesting than just the chaotic, manic, pixie, evil, you know, imp figure, and it, you know, it, it makes her more interesting. It's also um, it's it's it shows uh, Cross is quite attuned to the character as well, um, because it's it's vastly more interesting uh, a dynamic for uh, Alice to specifically swoop into John's life when he needs her because she was already there because she already was conscious of what was happening, as opposed to she's this mystical. Um, this 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 mystical uh, whimsical character who is capable of uh, turning up, helping him fix things, and leaving again. His guardian angel, so to speak. She 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 wants to be seen as that, but is not. And John has discovered by season three that that's not really what she is. She is just human and in love. There's that line Luther has to Ripley about Erin, but it can apply elsewhere. That the thing about love is that it brings out the best in you, but it can also bring out the worst. All your fears, rage, self-doubt, don't mess around with it. It'll blow up in your face. And Erin says, are you done? And then she looks a bit spooked or unsure when Luther walks away. But I guess all that love stuff can apply to Alice and whatnot as well. I mean, that almost paraphrases something Alice said to Luther in series one. You know, how can it be love if all it does is make you lonely and corrupt? Love is supposed to exalt us, blah, 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 blah. So it does seem like almost maybe that is an echo or a reminder that whole thing that Luther had about love making him worse rather than better. Another, we were talking about scary sequences earlier. Of course, the start of the second two part is scary as well. We've got the two friends finally kissing and, you know, I thought you'd never ask that sort of of thing going on. And then a group of unruly men start attacking the car and they've got out the guy and attacking and, you know, they're surely going to assault, sexually assault the woman afterwards and then our Batman, our hero, Marwood, comes out of nowhere. And it's, I love that this Marwood stuff, it really, it takes all the comic-y concerns that have been so much a part of the show and it really bigs them up to talk about more directly. And he's, 
I think Cross must have had to fight his own desires to give him some some sort of mask or more distinctive outfit because I'm sure there was a compulsion to do that there. But he comes out with his iconic shotgun and he saves the day. And that woman, you know, when the cops are all like, oh, you know, we've got to work out this vigilante. We've got to take care of him. She's all like, he saved me. I'm going to defend him, not, not help you guys. He's the one who saved me. He held my friend's hand until the ambulance arrived he saved me from being sexually assaulted. Everything is coming up Marwood, you know, in episode three for a lot of it. Uh, I think, and we get characterization for Marwood. He was an architect, he got depressed when his wife died. He was in hospital for a while. Then the gun club, martial arts, urban survival, like he was training for the zombie apocalypse. Originally, he's a very, he's a formidable foe. And like we, there's that river confrontation we talked about earlier when we're not so different you and I there's that kind of understanding going on I think things are going really well for Marwood for a while and seeing the pedophile hanged in that obviously a huge amount of people are going to support that even when the cops bring out uh, that woman who was victimized by the pedophile when she was a young girl even she you know doesn't obey the cops and she says kill him you should kill him the worst plan in human history. Let's have this woman relive her trauma in the hope that she... Yeah, just, what were they thinking, seriously? It was insanely unempathetic, just ridiculous plan from the cops and all the men in charge of that. But so I think there's a real... A lot of viewers are going to be rooting for Marwood for I think a lot of this two-parter. Where I think he really cocks it up is... It, when there's a really clear line to what he's doing and it's a very simple morality, I think he's on much better footing like there was a pedophile and he got free of prison too quickly that's bad he's he might hurt someone again when it's all that kind of stuff i think he's on pretty solid ground it's when he gets tied into these convoluted (laughs) plottier plots like well i have to kidnap this woman you know to get here to get to there and so i can accomplish this and accomplish that and when he starts to get tied in knots with the police as well and you know you can't film me i film you I, i think for Comic book morality, it's got to be comic book morality. It's got to be super simple. Otherwise, uh, people will turn on you because it'll confuse them and then you're just going to look like a criminal as well, as it does when he shoots Ripley and then he's a cop killer and the media turn on him. I think he overcomplicated things and he got his own narcissism and personality into it too much. I think if he really wanted to just save people... Uh, he could have done it a very different way. You know what that does remind me of? There is a there is a speech that Luther has to Mary uh, when he's trying to kind of explain and justify himself, where he talks about his past actions like he's in control of a car and it's skidding out of control <laughs> and he's trying to lean into the, the thing. So I think that whole thing you've just described with Marwood, I think it is meant to be almost a cracked mirror of how Luther's own attempts to do good end up getting him into deeper and deeper shit. But at, you know, that, at the same time, I think <laughs> Marwood's stuff is somehow like worse, probably, because Luther's never just like straight up looked loaded a shotgun into someone you know it's, 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 that kind of thing so i think the the mirroring isn't entirely complete but i think the intention is there that scheme to have a victim of the pedophile uh, beg for his life on tv that that was john's idea that was something that um you, you get a you get a very short piece of dialogue of shank saying um something like upstairs has sanctioned this um go ahead with it but you know on your head be it sort of thing uh, and john says yes it, it will definitely work and of course it, it doesn't work and it's a terrible idea as you say um, and then you have that moment bleed right into uh, John taking a beating to save Anonce's life, and it, it it just is it is it reads so ridiculously for John's sense of morality, um, which is it's proven at this point it's not thorny in the way that it has been for the last couple of seasons. It's clearly um, nonsense. 
it's it's corrupt. He, he his his sense of morality is 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 um it's unbelievable. Um, and this uh, I remember in, in the season one discussion that we had, my my thesis statement was that um, the person who has the the character who has the the best read on John is of course Zoe, um, and that. She, she has this line where she says, "Had she re- had he read a book, a different book at a different time in his life, he would have been a different man." Um, and that John has this um, malleability, or had a malleability to him, where he was not a person whose values were set in stone, but somebody who could be influenced. Um, and my my theory on that was that uh, that that was because he was a and is a narcissist. He, um, he's somebody that uh, feels a, 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 he he's a narcissist with a strong sense of, of empathy or whether that's um, innate or something that he creates, his empathy rules him, his feelings rule him and he feels a need to enact justice um, for others, for the safety of others. He feels that he has to be the saviour of others. Um, and uh, that is, yeah, that, that's something that, that really gets played with um, in this two-parter because the the morality that John has picked up through his life is so um, questionable and so uh, untenable that it, it fails here. He, he completely fails in his duty um, and ends up saving the life of somebody who, whose life doesn't deserve to be saved and ends up putting somebody through uh, trauma who didn't need to be put through that trauma. And he's, he's uh, enacting a very skewed sense of morality. Um, and Alice says this to him in episode four. She says that she, she, she has this line where she says, you assert a, a fabulous moral conscience. Mm. Um, uh, Adherence to unwritten law. Yeah, time and time again, it devastates. Yeah, uh, yeah, time and time again, it devastates the people you claim to hold dear, but you don't stop. Your conscience has killed more people than I have. Indeed. Although... In episode three, interestingly, the whole uh, sort of skewed morality regarding the paedophile and stuff there, it seems to be shared by you know, Luther's colleagues. I think there's a, a rather interesting line of dialogue where um, I think it's Schenk is talking to John and he says, uh, well, if we let him do this public hanging. about the, not, not so much necessarily about Luther, but about the police. Yeah, it, it says uh, when um, Schenk has this line of dialogue where he talks to Luther and says, well, if we let him go ahead with this hanging, then it might lead to lynchings and pogroms. And I think there's something really fascinating about just um, making the link between like a paedophile uh, getting executed and like racism, and it, I, I think there is a kind of intriguing sense of like what is the the, the sort of the moral baseline here in terms of uh, like I guess the the police force, which is generally the police characters in the show, and what, maybe what uh, what we're kind of intended to consider as like the baseline for morality. It's it's it's, it's very um intriguing. I think because the thing is um. The sense of, like, well, we can't just ha- go back to, like, bread and circuses and public hangings and stuff and just brutality and everyone taking the law into their own hands and blah, 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 blah. You know, there's, I think there is a sympathetic element to that, but, like, the way in which it manifests as, like, let's save the nonce to stop, I don't know, whatever the fuck. It's, it's like, I think it does inevitably come off as incredibly skewed, like, like we've said. So Luther, is, Luther, doesn't, Luther doesn't seem to be alone in this weird uh, morality that he has, basically. I, I, there's so much interesting stuff going on there. One is like the first episode of the show is Luther doesn't save a bad guy, uh, even though he should, because he knows this guy has done so much stuff that's bad. So it's interesting to kind of link in the Madsen stuff to here. Two, that exchange. So that starts with the social media jokes. It's Shank saying, do you understand social networking? No, good, then I'm not alone. People are trying to incite 
the pedo's execution. Luther says, like Gig said, bread and circus is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and then Shank fearmongers with, if Marwood gets his wish, people vote to hang the pedophile, and they will for who would suffer a pedophile to live. Then there's no ending where this is, there's no telling where this is going to end. Riots, copycat murders, lynchings, pogroms, gangs of vigilantes, kicking to death, people whose faces don't fit. I, I wonder at how, I don't know what Cross's own opinion is there, but I think that it does say a lot of interesting stuff about the police that they have this kind of moral insanity or moral nonsense, or at least moral convolutions, similar to Marwood, who gets in his own moral convolutions. It makes me think of two American stories or this dichotomy between Marwood and Luther's moral convolutions we've been talking about. One is The Wire, where so much of that show is kind of suggesting that the police force in the show's vision can be seen as kind of a, a gang, essentially. It's, it's government sanctioned, but it's essentially a gang very comparable to the other gangs, the, and all institutions you could call them, because the show kind of accords uh, a lot of the drug dealer society the same way, but essentially a kind of gang fueled by narcissists where the drive to take down, you know, the drug dealers or whatever isn't driven by an outrage over drugs. Like the why is quite explicit over the lunacy it finds in the war on drugs in the first place. And, you know, some of the cop characters, you know, accord with this, agree with this, but this, this just desire to triumph over the other people. It's an intellectual exercise. I think there's a lot of Luther comparisons you can make there. The main wire character uh, Detective McNulty, there's loads done there where it's just this narcissist drive to triumph over like the intellectual puzzle boxes more than it is any empathetic thing you could argue. So I think there's a lot of stuff there that's similar, uh, but also Batman in that a lot of Batman stories, uh, and sometimes the narrative's aware of this and characters lampshade it, and sometimes it's not. A lot of the times Batman will have like a rule, I can't kill people, or at least he'll have a rule, I can't kill the big important enemies like the Joker. And so Batman will get in these insane situations where he's doing, like sometimes he's very obviously killing people, but like the film or the comic just doesn't dwell on it because they're not named people. And he's killing people to go save the Joker who I can't actually kill. Or or he'll just be doing similar, just moral insanity to try and get the Joker into prison, which he knows the Joker's going to escape from. It's basically moral nonsense, uh, storytelling, that we kind of understand because it's such a normal form of storytelling for like comic book characters. But I think both those kinds of moralities, the nonsense comic morality of um, saving the criminal, even where it makes increasingly less sense, at least to keep saving them in the same ways. And that kind of American storytelling police just as a sanctioned gang of narcissists kind of thing. I think this two-parter with Marwood and Luther uh, played with a lot of similar ideas. It's fascinating that in this case with the pedophile hanging, the police are trying to race to stop an idea from getting out. Mm. Like, if it, you know, rather it's not like it's not so much about saving, like stopping the crime in particular, as it is about stopping everyone seeing the crime and it, inspiring people and, and getting like a, the wrong idea out there. It's quite fascinating. Although, although um, something that's maybe not acknowledged is that the police storming in to prevent the hanging and <laughs> getting beaten up by everyone and everyone seeing that, that in its own way is just a different idea getting sort of shown to everyone instead it's, it's it's kind of fascinating it's just like it in the same sense that the villain of this arc is like a cracked mirror of luther and kind of trying to be almost the, the logical conclusion of luther in a way the killer who is the hero at the same time it's sort of like this sense that rather than actual serial killer in this case it's just 
the police are trying to stop like uh, something that is bigger than them this actual like abstract concept from escaping it sort of feels like the final boss of luther in some ways is what i'm trying to get at yeah tyler any thoughts yeah i was um i was uh looking at the um i, w- I was wondering why uh cross chose the name tom marwood um i discovered that tom comes from uh, a hebrew word meaning twin and marwood um is i mean this is this one's a bit of a leap but uh, the twin one is interesting but marwood comes from um the name uh mal reward i think i remember reading which uh is french mal obviously meaning bad as, as a prefix and uh reward being regard meaning uh look so it, it uh mal, mal reward means to cast an evil eye to cast a bad bad eye a bad glance evil glance um so, uh, but I, yeah, I certainly think uh, Tom as twin is uh, really interesting. If, if uh, Neo, your your hypothesis, your, your uh, yeah, hypothesis is that um, he's a reflection of John. Well, it's you bring up etymology like Mary does because she what derives Luther's name German equating to people's army as people's army, yeah. And it's a people's army that kind of goes and cheers on the hanging of the uh, pedophile. I love how there's this great exchange. I really love this sequence. It's kind of a narrative breakdown thing where it reminds me in series two's first two-parter, the Punch and Judy guy, when Luther just stops talking to the Punch and Judy killer when he's unmasked and he just talks to the kid instead and it just breaks down the whole narrative of the spooky Punch and Judy guy and he just shrivels up into a corn cob basically because he can't deal with not being afforded any respect. I feel a kind of similar vibe when Alice <laughs> starts filming Marwood and he's like... You, you can't film me. I, I, I film them. <laughs> I'm in charge here. <laughs> yeah. He's just kind of waving around. He has no idea how to kind of respond to this situation. And he has this super pathetic exchange with Luther uh, where he's like, uh, you can't hold me accountable if you choose not to listen when he's trying to justify like killing Ripley, saying that's not my fault because you didn't do what I said and or he didn't do what I said. And so Luther says, I can hold you accountable because, you know, I'm the police. I thought that was a fun scene. Uh, Alice, um, in the, the final scene of the season, asks what came of Marwood. And John says he's alive and suffering. Uh, and Alice says good, um, which obviously indicates growth on her part for uh, agreeing now with John's original sentiment with Ian that it would have been better for him to be alive in prison and suffer um, than to die. Uh, I think, um, Neo, you and I disagreed with that sentiment. We, we agreed that dying is is worse we agreed with alice but um it's interesting now that by season three um she's adopted john's approach it's interesting that jo- john actually successfully gets to condemn someone to life this time you know the, the actual it's actually put into his hands whereas he sort of tried with ian and it sort of the decision was taken away from him in this case we get that scene of him sort of pressing down on marwood's wound on his neck and saying well hey i'll, I'll let you die if you tell me what i want just kidding <laughs> you gotta live you suck i think in this case it is because like the <laughs> yeah, I love that line. Not on your Nelly, it's great. Yeah, I think it, in this case it is because the the guy in question is so like desperate to die because he's fucked everything up so mad badly, and also you know he wants to somehow feel like his death means something as as relates to his dead wife, right? Too. So it, so it's like um. Uh, it's interestingly earlier on in the episode luther says okay well i will deprive him of his martyrdom and that's the cruelest thing i can think of so when he's uh, plotting away with alice and kind of being his his, uh, his crueler self which i, I kind of loved so it's uh, 
the the whole thing of um condemning Marwa to life, it's maybe not not just in the sense that um a question of whether dying is worse or living is worse or whatever, but in this case it's specifically because Marwood so dearly wanted to die and mean something in dying that denying him death is not just like a the the better thing to do generally, but just because it's specifically like a, a it's a good sort of revenge against this guy from Luther's point of view. I think in terms of Marwood screwing things up, he has this line towards the end where he's doing the whole rooftop escalation with Mary, Alice, Luther. It's ugly, isn't it? Being impotent, being degraded by a violent man that you'll never get to punish. I think he really screwed up getting, <laughs> this sounds so silly, getting too personal uh, with his vigilantism. Like he was making so much of it like a psychological, uh, I felt bad this way, so I'm going to make everyone else feel bad this way, which just counteracts his like bigger vigilante goals and morality stuff and you know want for a referendum i think it's all undercut by he gets too personal and then he does his uh, evil little scenarios where he's like just trying to hurt people the way he was hurt when you think of successful vigilantes like or like in fictionally like batman or spider-man or whatever they're not specifically going out and just trying to make people feel bad the way they felt bad like batman isn't trying to make more orphans and he's not even just trying to go kill more street killers or whatever that killed his parents. And Spider-Man's not just going out trying to kill uh, whoever were the type of person to kill his uncle. They go out and they do more comic booky, straightforward. Uh, I'm trying to stop evil things happening. I'm going to stop, you know, more general crimes or like supervillains or whatever. And Marwood, I think he tries for that a bit in episode three at least, but then he gets too sidetracked into these big convolutions and then just trying to hurt people the way he's been hurt. He... For all the martial arts training and everything he did, I don't think he was cut out to be a superhero. But the big rooftop escalation is a kind of uh, blockbustery sequence, isn't it? Where you've got to choose one. You've got to choose Alice or you can choose Mary and, you know, I'm going to kill the other. What did you guys think of that whole deal? I love the way Wilson plays that scene. Mm. I always thought ever since it first aired back then, I was always thinking like, this is more about the themes regarding Luther than it is Marwood as a character. Because I think like, we're sort of we're just sort of derailing whatever character Marwood is to get it into this situation that's about Luther and his life and his choices. Which I, I completely get the intentionality of the story there. And I think I sort of love it in its own bizarre way. But just in terms of in terms of how it relates to Marwood's storyline, it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, okay, he's just he's just being put in this position so we can get this scene here and we can have these three characters, Luther, Alice and Mary, like where they are. Like Marwood starts to matter less, I think, in the scheme of things. Wilson plays this scene as um, Alice defeated and scared for the the first and only time um, that I can think of. Yeah, which is really fascinating because um, it's it's then it's 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 not really John. Uh, you could argue this, but I, I I think it's it's not really John that saves her um, because there's this um, there's this line again in the in the very final scene when, while the credits are being intercut. Um, where she says to John, that was a good plan, (laughs) you know, saying that you would shoot me. That worked out really well, didn't it? And he, I don't think, maybe he says yes, or maybe he doesn't say anything, but he looks down, he looks away, kind of implying that that it wasn't really a plan. It was, he was genuinely saying, shoot Alice, save Mary. Um, So it wasn't, it wasn't John that saved Alice, despite what she may think it was Mary. I love that because I think it ties into all the, Cops and other paternal figures get these kind of ideas of how we can use people who have been victimized or what they're going to do, but it's not really thinking through what they're actually going to feel. We saw it with uh, like the character in the press conference with Shank. I love that 
Mary is like, why would I condemn Alice? She saved my life. Like tangibly, she helped me out. Uh, I like all that kind of stuff there. It's it's so interesting because it's Mary sa- saves Alice. When Marwood goes to shoot Alice, Mary, you know, goes for the gun and that allows Alice to kill Marwood. So it's the team. it's the teamwork there. I love that the people who've been victimized don't just act passively uh, in this series and the cops kind of wrongfully assume how they're going to act in some ways. I like all that stuff. In a way, it's almost like only by using Mary in that way and kind of embroiling Mary into like the, the violence and like the chaos and kind of relying on her to have to actually step in. Only by, in that way can Luther get you know, what he wants. He has, he has his cake and eat it too. Both women survive. But only because Mary is kind of almost tainted you know, by sort of having to like reach in and like grab the gun and like risk her own life and all that stuff. So that's kind of like the, the tragedy of it in a way. Like they both survive. Luther kind of wins, but it's in this kind of tainted way where Mary has sort of been sort of dragged in, if you see what I mean. And I think maybe that reads to Alice as like a clever, a terribly clever manipulation, a plan. But at the same time, it's sort of on Luther's side. It's sort of like a, it's like a submission in a way. He's sort of giving up, but also in a way kind of, he, he's sort of losing in some ways because he's saying, okay, shoot Alice. And either either that happens and he loses Alice or Mary kind of saves Alice and he kind of loses Mary. Do you see what I mean? It's kind of, it's like a catch 22 that he's in. I, I have two thoughts there. Uh, one on Marwood and one on Luther. So the first is, when Luther said Alice, I think, at least Tyler, I think you had the same thought I had there. When he said Alice, I thought he meant save Alice. Same, same. I was like, I was like, whoa, that's, you know, that's a big move, Cross. And then no, it's shoot Alice. That's interesting you both thought that then. I wonder, I wonder if that then was uh, the intentional... I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, ...reaction. That, because, he, because he says Alice... And then there's a beat, and then he says, shoot Alice. Yeah. And also, Alice looks up as well, doesn't she? Alice sort of looks up and smiles a bit. So I, I wonder whether that was played as Alice also thinking that he was saving her. And the other thought I had with Marwood, like Gig is saying, feeling him kind of mechanically manoeuvred around in the narrative just to be like the antagonistic force for this setup at the end. I do... I wonder if he hadn't shot Ripley and if we tweaked his characterization a bit to be less self-defeating i wonder what that would have been like a more pure marwood as the villain for the finale i've no idea how that would work but a marwood that wouldn't have shot ripley i think could have been interesting because it would have i guess forced some of the vigilante themes to be dealt with more uh because marwood is in some ways he's treated like well to bring it back to superheroes a lot of superhero movies will have a villain who's like an environmentalist or like a crusader against racism or something i'm thinking uh uh, Killmonger in Black Panther or Orm in Aquaman. And it's a sort of villain that the audience is going to be like nodding their heads and going, yeah, you know, at least for the start, look, look, these ideas make sense. I hate racism too. I hate pollution in the ocean as well. But then they do something out of nowhere that's just nuts. They kill a kid or they just do something insanely evil and the audience is like, right, no, they are bad. Uh, forget what they were spouting and let's let our superhero conserve the status quo and scrap them. Uh, Marwood... I wonder, is he a bit like that? And like, was he making too much of a point that we had to have him kill Ripley? What do you guys think of that equivalence? I think vigilantism always gets too big, too noisy, doesn't it? I think um, that's that's uh, that's just something that that's the way that vigilantism is. That's the way that vigilantism works. And I think you can only believe that vigilantism can work uh, if. I, th- and this is quite a thorny topic to get into because it's political ideology. But I think you can only think that that works as an anarchist. Um, 
and that is something that uh, the majority of uh, people in Western society do not uh, agree with, even pe- people on the far left in in many cases. And I I, I just I think that um, I, I think less than it being a, a Thanos type of thing, like a Marvel type of thing. It's it's just a commentary on um, what happens when people try to take justice into their own hands without some sense of um, social order, be it perfect or not. Yeah, I don't think Cross uh, takes Marwood's whole thing of like, oh, death penalty, vigilante justice, seriously, in a way that something like Black Panther maybe takes racism kind of seriously. I, I don't think he's really taking it that seriously. But uh, I think the the basic structure that you outlined there with the villain does something where we just completely stop sympathising with him completely. I think that is there. But I think the the reason that Marwood kind of unspools into just this self-defeating kind of pathetic dude is that there's not really... Um, the, the show isn't that interested in really seriously trying to engage with the moral question of, like, should we just have vigilante justice everywhere? Because I think, I think it's kind of... Uh, I think it's kind of not really bothered about trying to, like, answer that question. Partially, maybe partially because the hero of the show is already, you know, so so often taking the law into his own hands, so it's kind of almost given up any right to kind of, like, come down either side on that question. So it takes more of an interest in just getting into the character stuff and having Marwood be, like, a foil to Luther who ruins Luther's life in some way. I kind of wish it had confronted it more. Like, I don't don't think Cross was getting super political, uh, but it's kind of confused, like... Marwood calls on the state, like he uses those words a few times, and then he wants a referendum. So it's it's kind of like. <laughs> but at the start, I was thinking, is he like like? And then he's going, well, I want a nice and orderly referendum uh, for the people to decide on this issue. This is the um, I don't. Th- that's the that's the type of person that um, Marwood is supposed to be, isn't it? He, he's the uh, I, I, I referred earlier to him as a as a, a guardian reader gone rogue. Yeah, he's supposed to be. Um, he's he's like the 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 type of uh, neoliberal twenty ten um, uh, London liberal elite uh, type of character who uh, goes through a crisis and and takes matters into his own hands. But um, that type of character is only a leap away from fascism. That's what Marwood is. I think what makes him more of a superhero molded character than a supervillain molded character is he isn't trying to topple the system is he he's he keeps like he wants to he's a reformist basically he keeps saying the system was meant to you know keep these men in prison like not kill these men even a lot of times he says they're meant to stay locked away uh but the system's failed and so his call on referendum it really seems to me like he's trying to incite public like policy change more than he's trying to incite like anything revolutionary i think that's actually really interesting because in a way you'd think it would make him more sympathetic at least for this sort of show an outright i'm an anarchist and i want you know let's tear the world down kind of thing uh so i i kind of wish more had been done because i think it's he's a really interesting yeah guardian reader gone rogue i think it's a more interesting kind of antagonist than just a more straightforward i want to change everything it's quite a fascinating take on um on on liberal uh approaches to radicalism uh in the sense that the, the easiest approach for what Marvel is going for, which I think is, like you're saying, it's, it's basically like a, a Caitlin's Law type of thing. Um, it, it, rather than lobbying Parliament, which is the the typical way to get that kind of, to get that kind of thing, that's how these things happen: is a year or two of lawyers and, and scandals coming out about politicians and such. Um, he, his uh, approach to doing that is um, violent and anarchistic, but not rooted in anything. 
it's he's he's taking the uh, the the democratic established system um, and still believing in it, but trying to shake it up, but but also sustain it. Yeah, you mentioned um, I think Neo. The word you used earlier was confused, and uh, Tyler, you just said like it's not rooted in anything. It reminds me um, during the river confrontation in episode three. I think he, um, Marwood mentions how one in five murders are committed by men on bail, blah, 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 blah. They talk about bail specifically. So why does that, you know, work? You know, why can people just pay to be free or whatever and stuff? And then in part four, he says, I want to, let's have a referendum on the death penalty. <laughs> so, and I think like there, there's quite a big difference between let's uh, get rid of, say, the bail system or whatever versus let's, let's bring back executing criminals rather than having them in prison. It, it, it's, I think that sense of just the lack of, overall coherence and just generally kind of flinging spaghetti at the wall and just having a wild sense of like okay i want this but also i want this and this and this i think it's the lack of a a clear ideological core to like who he is and like what he wants i think there yeah there's there's nothing co- co- cohesive to him in it and, you, and you sort of get the impression that had he had uh, a stronger sense of um what ought to be done to achieve his means like if he were to uh, rally up a, a cult as he sort of does he, he, he uh, rallies up a mob had he directed them to parliament uh, and said now we storm parliament that would have <laughs> perhaps achieved the things that he was looking to achieve but w- what he does is is rally up a mob and then say and then and then what you know now we sign some petitions <laughs> Where does, i don't know what what does, what does he want them to do <laughs> we're going to kill a pedophile and and tweet up our mp He's he's a vigilante, not a revolutionary, I think is the thing, which I do think is interesting. It's like he gets compared to like a doomsday prep. I get no, he gets compared to a zombie apocalypse like obsessive. And of course, there's lots of men like that who get really fixated on these ideas of what if. And sometimes it's the more out there like zombie apocalypse ideas. Sometimes it's the less out there uh, nuclear wasteland or just some kind of national devastation is going to happen and it's going to be up to me and my tins of beans, uh, you know, to Rorschach this shit out. Uh, I feel like that's a very specific, I, I, I imagine lots of people, maybe most people know someone like that to some extent. So I think that's a really interesting, the, the kind of individualist survival, like it says he does herbal surviving courses, herbal, urban survival courses. I think that type of character is really interesting. I, I find Marwood so interesting. I, I, yeah, I wish there'd be even more of him. Uh, because even when he kind of gets a little less interesting, maybe or more pathetic in the finale, I just I think it's a very interesting character cross thought up here. Even if some bits of him maybe weren't thought through as much as maybe we're thinking. And I love how the actor makes him sound like and feel so posh. <laughs> I think there is something just so like prissy about him, like the way he speaks, and I think it really works for the whole theme in dialogue style of villain that Luther yeah. does. I think in his case, when he's this guy who's being terribly so like, you know, pretentious and intellectual about it and, oh, oh, you, this, this, this is on your head, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he's just, I think there's something really funny about it, but also very true. I love just the poshness of him. I love that line. Um, now do me a favour and throw me your phone, please. <laughs> <That's so good. laughs> yeah. there's, uh, Alice has a good read on him too uh, when she's talking about Marwood with Luther. What a needy little fishy, she says. No, he's got a hero complex. He needs public opinion to justify his actions to himself. Alice asks, what's the plan, Stan? Luther says, I take away everything he wants, you know, to avenge his wife, to be admired, to become a martyr, or to make his wife's death mean something. And Alice thinks, you know, that's quite cruel that you would take all that away from him. So I guess that gets again to the moral convolutions where Luther does some insane stuff to try and... uh, defeat Marwood but 
A needy little fishy, I think, is quite accurate. And, you know, we've been talking about Batman over and over again. Like, one of the, one of the tenets of Batman is that he's, he's incredibly rich. He's posh. Yeah. Right? He's this privileged guy. So, in the sense, like, uh, Marwood being this kind of, like, guardian reader kind of snob figure, in its own way, kind of almost connects him to Batman again. I, I know that, like, comic fans will bring up, no, but in this comic, he actually donates and he runs an orphanage or whatever. But I think <laughs> an extremely core part of Batman as a character and pretty much every major iteration is that instead of trying to instate some kind of wide structural change that maybe in the long run could mitigate some of the circumstances that led to his parents dying he elects to go beat up people in the street (laughs) for a lot of the time instead and sometimes to beat up other rich people with crazy gadgets as well which is kind of a it makes all the sense in the world for a very continuous stream of wacky storytelling in a city like Gotham or a city like Neil Cross's London, but it is kind of a uh, conceited or a kind of rich, privileged kind of way to look at things. And it's like a way to vent out his own psychological uh, grief and frustration and whatnot. And Marwood is so, so similar in all those ways. He's not trying to instate big structural change like we're talking about. His politics are quite confused. And he's shooting up, I mean, it's very easy to argue a lot of these men deserve at least more than they're getting from the state. In, in terms of punishment and whatnot, but he is basically going around shooting people uh, or he's doing crazy schemes like with that pregnant woman or he's engaging in like moral weird uh, conversations with another man who wears the same outfit every day. So yeah, he's a very Batman-like figure in his flaws. What did you guys make of um, John going on a, a bit of a tirade and commandeering phones and commandeering vehicles? Well, it's, it's, a, it's kind of that thin line again, isn't it, between criminal and cop in that, hey, your car, mine now. Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's, it's part of like the, the fabric of Luther that Luther just doesn't really... Res- <laughs> Luther just does whatever he wants, in a way. That's kind of just how he works, especially when the, the chips are down and shit's gotten real. He, he will steal anyone's car, he will steal anyone's phone, he will punch anyone, he will do anything. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it proves, not that we need to further proof, that um, Justin was right. Uh, in that, in in the in the scrap that they did have, um, Justin Justin says, uh, "It's never you, is it? You never admit to any of these things." But the truth was that Justin was right about his um, his theory that John had called Barnaby to um, make him aware. Um, and he, it's it's the same thing here. It's it, John can never admit uh, any wrongdoing because uh, John is always above the law because John is always right. What do you think of Alice meep meeping? to the uh, series and serial HQ. I Shank working with Alice is fun <laughs> and sexy storytelling, but I don't buy it. <laughs> no, I don't either. Uh, I, I, it's, 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 it is, I, I accept it because it's, it's, it's cute. If you see what I mean, I, I accept it because it's, um, it's, this is entertainment and I can, I, I understand that sometimes there is a need to, to bend the, the the rules of these things, and I, I don't take Luther as a, a realistic gritty crime drama, as some might describe it. Um, but I don't buy it. Uh, not only as a real, not, not only in terms of realism, um, but in terms of Shank's character. It's Shank's character, yeah. Yeah, it does. It just doesn't. It just doesn't sit for me, and, and there isn't. There certainly isn't enough time spent on it. If she had a proxy go into the HQ, or if they'd met in some kind of public scenario she contrived, maybe. But then how would they have the files? Like, 
Yeah. What do you think, Gig? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where like it's way too easy. I think it almost it's one of those things where it verges on Alice getting elevated to like the cartoon character status again, where she can do anything. Like you know, she's like like Missy and Doctor Who like turning up to sort of cause chaos and get away with everything. Um, having said that, I, I think it sort of posts by on uh, partly Ruth Wilson's performance again because when she swoops into the room, she has that sort of like bizarre like magnetic kind of charisma where like everything is just completely under her command and it's almost like supernatural. The way she sort of steps in just sort of changes the atmosphere. Like it is, it, like you say, it's incredibly fun and sexy storytelling, and you know, it's balmy. And I think generally the tone of that episode is increasingly bonkers, and uh, as things escalate and escalate and escalate. So like the the brazen stupidity of her walking in, just getting the files, and everyone just just going along with it because oh yeah, we just, we love Luther so much, we've got to save Luther. Yeah, we'll work with this this murderer woman. It's, it's all fine. Like it, it's uh, I think it's sort of the show starting to break down more and more as it barrels towards its climax. Like, it's got this very single-minded uh, fixation on getting to that that ending and that conclusion. And in the pursuit of that, like, some of the some of the pillars of logic behind the series maybe start to topple. It, it's, it's quite a stark difference from Schenck's uh, Series 1 finale, uh, feeling on Luther getting away with it, where in, in this finale, uh, Alice says, do you not feel that we need to prove John's innocence? Whereas in, in series one, it was it was it was Schenk that was the antagonist. It was Schenk that John and Alice were working against, to, uh, to conspiring against with Justin to um, retrieve evidence necessary to buy Luther more time. I think if I remember rightly, at one point in the finale, I think Schenk is talking to George, and I think George says like, "Oh, uh, Luther sure has some loyal friends, doesn't he?" Yeah. And Schenk's yeah. like, "You bet he does," or something similar to that effect. It's like literally just admitting to the fact that yeah, like we're covering for Luther, which <laughs> we're brazenly corrupt. That's that's what we're doing. In in that sense, I can buy uh, Schenk doing what it takes to save John. And I do think that by this point in the show, that is uh, a believable thing to happen because um, we, we open in season two with. The man that's been conspiring against John in a different role, in, in a different job title, has now taken on a new job title, decided that he wants John, and he's going to take the risk. He, he's he's going to take on this guy that he knows to be uh, a, a police force tornado and will rely on him because he wants good police work. Um, and and they, they do establish a friendship and a good rapport. So I, I, there is a... It, it's not entirely ridiculous, which is why I, I accept it to the extent that I do. But... I am dissatisfied with the way that it's very quickly brushed over. I think Schenk has sort of transformed into a staple of that procedural genre where you have kind of the dad figure of the team, like the wholesome grandpa figure of the team. Line of Duty has this as well. You know, the the guy who will always like support everyone and be friendly in the end. It's it's quite a far cry from where Schenk was originally. Yeah, I feel like the sanctity of Schenk in season one was that like he respects Luther absolutely, but he respects his job so much which is why he's like luther you know luther i like you and i like good police work like you can do and everything but this is my job so i might give you a bit of a warning but i am coming for you was like his series one characterization and then in series two he was a good boss you know that all made sense with series three and the george i'm sticking up for my man no matter what thing the reason it rankles me a bit is because i thought like shank like he respects luther but his job is like the main thing and there it's like he's choosing luther over his job which I guess you can see is a progression, but Schenk, Schenk is a bit of a uh, Chuck McGill, the law is sacred kind of character. Yeah, um, and it, and it's and it's it, he has um, he's shed that for, for the for the sake of plot in season three, unfortunately. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
in a way, it's almost like the police morality of people actually supposedly respecting the law and such is just kind of increasingly hypocritical and like falling apart. Like the more Luther uh, has things happen to him and people like go out of their way to protect him and defend him and stuff. It's like the just the, any sort of underpinning for any of those characters just sort of like uh, disintegrates. There's three things left I want to talk about. If you guys are more, of course, that's great. I want to talk about how this season functions as like an ending. And then there's two Neil Cross interviews I want to go through. First, I think especially Gig Among Us might have thoughts on this. Obviously, the show continues. There's a series four. There's a series five. Uh, 2023 film. But a lot feels quite conclusive about this series. Gig, what's your perspective on that? Well, I should probably come out and say, you know, I am the Luther truther. I'm starting a movement of Luther truthers. And uh, we, our belief is that Luther ended at series three and uh, <laughs> there, there are no more episodes. It's over, guys. <laughs> um, and I think part of what contributed to that feeling that I had, like on, on watching this originally, that my feeling that I, I'd be okay if it was over here, it's just the sense that not only the whole thing we get in the second two-parter of kind of confronting a like a cracked mirror of Luther and kind of confronting Luther's hypocrisy and all of that and such. But the way in which um, throughout this series, Luther is trying to rebuild his life by finding this nice woman, Mary, and that just gets completely uh, trod all over by Alice and just completely condemned as like a, a complete pretense. And ultimately, he, he finally says, okay, fuck it. I'll throw away my coat, my lucky coat that I've been clinging to all these years. I'll throw it away. I give up. I, I will submit to that thing Alice proposed to me in series two, this whole thing. Because Alice has been insisting over and over that Luther shouldn't be in this job. It's, it's vampirizing him. It's, it's destroying him. It's not working for him. He should just do what he really wants and blah, 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 blah. And at the end of this series, we we get that whole uh, choose one. And the way it seems to wrap up, we get that quite sweet scene between Luther and Mary, where Mary's like, <laughs> basically tells him, go get her, John. And Luther, um, this uh, lo lovely song starts playing in the background, Never Given to Give You Up, by the Black Keys, their cover of it. Mm. And he, uh, he follows Alice, and they're lit by the sun. There's something incredibly romantic about it in a way that's gloopy, almost, like uncharacteristically gloopy <laughs> for the show. But the tone escalating to such a degree with this kind of romantic song playing in the back and you know, Luther and Alice almost kissing. <laughs> There's this way in which uh, this almost unabashedly shippy kind of ending for Luther and Alice in as much as it sort of feels perverse in how like fan pleasing it is it also feels like the fact that luther is finally sort of doing this and kind of giving up on the the pretense of being a law official it feels like he's actually come to some sort of character arc some sort of conclusion and it's sort of like well it just sort of feels like the collapse of the show. Like, where can, how can we possibly <laughs> continue from this point without limply reversing this and going back to the status quo of Luther being a cop? You know, I feel like once Luther has actually taken that step and run off with Alice to go have their fun honeymoon of whatever the fuck they're going to do, it just feels like the logical ending of Luther. And there is something quite almost like heavenly about and beatific when he casts off the coat and he just mm. walks off into the distance. There is like something really heartening about it, seeing Luther kind of not heal really because we know he's going to get worse but it's sort of taking taking his life in his own hands for once and just giving up on all the the great burden that he's given himself all these years so there's a way in which it feels like casting off like this great burden from his shoulders and it feels like sort of angelic like he's rising into the light with alice so so it feels like uh, like the payoff of things that have been set up from in the previous two seasons and it feels in a lot of way like i just 
I just feel satisfied thinking of this as where the show logically ended and obviously there was more and there you know there were good things in what came you know uh, later on you know i'm not like uh, you know, i'm not in the position where i like condemn people for liking the, the later episodes but and they do uh, end the show more conclusively in their own way but um i sort of just feel like i can just take or leave everything after this so yeah my two cents i suspect i'm gonna be the centrist between you two here which means i'm anticipating you tyler to have the opposite view of gig is that correct I don't, I don't entirely agree, but I wouldn't say I have the opposite view. I, I see season three of Luther as sort of the season 18 of Doctor Who, where things are starting to get a bit mm. pat, and, and, it's, it, and I think everybody's conscious of it. Um, and in a way, it's kind of baked into the, into the story, whether, whether by design or not. Um, and, and necessarily, in order for the series to continue, things need to be shaken up. Something needs to happen. To, uh, to change the state of play, as Alice would say. Um, and I think, without going too far into it, because we will come, we will come to this in time, uh, season four is that. I think season four is a soft reboot, and I don't think it does. You can, I, I, I'm fully prepared to, to, to have to argue this point when, when we come to it, but I don't think that season four quite does uh, that thing we were talking about earlier, where um, the cliffhanger of season three is... Um, just very quickly shut down and never brought up again. I think season four toys with it, uh, and season five toys with it, in fact, in really interesting ways. So season three is like, it's like goodbye to all that. It's 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 uh, um, the last time we see the old approach. Um, and I think yeah. I agree with you that it it could it could um, it could comfortably end here, but uh, I don't think it has to. And I think that what Cross does in order to prevent it from ending is the, I think he has, I think his approach to continuing Luther is um, more interesting to me than what came before. My thoughts are like gig and like Tyler, I really like series three. I really like this finale of series three a lot. And I do also think it feels like a finale, like it, it confronts Luther's a lot of Luther's own hypocrisies and ideas and it, it very high stakes ending. It feels like an ending to the show, but without going into any detail series five's finale, uh, whether you like it or not, I think it feels so much more like an ending to the show to me, at least I felt the way that ended. I felt like, yes, that's the ending to the show uh, much more so than I felt with series three as conclusive as series three is, but series five endings, not, the ending of the show either is it it continues on to the film we haven't seen yet we're recording this in january 2023 the film comes out uh later on this year but obviously the film is to come and i feel like because this is in a very meta angle now this isn't to do with the characters this is to do with neil cross and idris elba because the film has been talked about forever for over a decade i feel like the show can't end without whatever the quality or story that's going to be without a film, because that feels like the collision between Idris Elba's, you know, ever heightening stardom and career and what he's wanted for so long to bring Luther to the, well, I mean, it's partly a, it's partly a Netflix film, but it still is coming to cinemas to bring Luther to the cinema screen. So I really like series three's finale and I think it is very finale-ish and I understand the Luther Truther movement, but I also feel like series five's finale whether one likes it more or less than series three finale feels more like a finale to me, but also it isn't a finale either. 
I also think a movie structurally is where the series is heading to. I think as the TV series goes on, I think it's trying to do things with the TV structure that I think make it feel like really what it just wants to be is a movie where everything's just one big thing and it doesn't have to juggle around a bunch of subplots and so on and so forth. Like with a movie, you can just have one big story. And I think that's what the series has kind of deep down been like craving, like since I think since series two, at least. Okay, I will look at some cross stuff. Uh, There's an interview from 2014. So... Well, Series 4 came out at the very end of 2015. So this is related to Series 3 instead. And I just think there's a lot of stuff here you two might be interested in. It might be interesting to talk about. And then there's another interview which is even more interesting after this. So this one, he's talking about, we know the history of Neil Cross is he was a novelist first and then he started dipping his toes in with some adaptational stuff and TV and film work. He eventually became like the head writer of the show Spooks, which is like a... uh, big high stakesy uh like homegrown terrorism type of thing is that a fair characterization tyler yeah are, are you are you talking in the sense that I, I think i described to you the other day cross's uh take on this kind of thing is very similar to skyfall yeah rather than it being a rather rather than it being a, a big state thing or a government thing it's a all of the power is uh harnessed by a single randomly evil individual yeah uh so that was where he cut his teeth i guess more in tv obviously we know him Eventually, he starts doing some Doctor Who. Uh, he did two 2013 episodes, which I I like them both a lot, higher than The Rings of Akaten. Anyway, in this interview, he's talking about how his career as a novelist influenced him. And he says, as a novelist, I was still learning my craft, how to strip story down and be as unencumbered as possible. A sidebar, that might feed into the movie impulses, like Gig was raising, that the series yearns to be a movie uh, in that it's... A movie is by nature more unencumbered than a TV show, isn't it? It's just a big solid thing. Mm. Anyway, back to Cross. What I learned fed into storytelling on screen, then what I learned about screenwriting fed into the novels. But TV has become, in a sense, a literary form of expression. The Sopranos was year zero in as much as it was approached by its audience in the same way as a Dickens part work was approached by its audience. A big, long fat story eaten up in chunks the wire clearly exists in cultural space that was in the victorian era inhabited by the novel he'll talk about the psyche of novelists in a second but before that any thoughts on the structural stuff he's talking about there i've never looked at it this way i find it really really fascinating um the 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 specifically the analogy with things like um uh conan Doyle writing in the strand or uh, Dickens publishing novels, or, or I, th- I think uh, Dickens also published in the Strand, didn't he? So uh, I, I, re- I really like the idea of the episodic uh, season um, formula of TV being similar to the cons- consumption of Victorian literature. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I just I think that's a, a beautiful analogy. He's getting at something very truthful there when he talks about some of the greatest TV, some of the greatest writer-led TV having a novelistic quality to it almost. I mean, if anyone who's watched like The Wire can easily see. I mean, they got like not actual novel writers to contribute to The Wire yeah. writing room, didn't they? So that's the whole thing. That's the way in which that show almost like has so many separate things going on simultaneously, but it's so dense that every new episode feels like a chapter of a novel in some way, or almost a novel unto itself. Like that, that is a huge thing. So he's, he's talking about something very true there. I think I'm wary. I think it's very easy for like TV nerd people like us to uh, trek into the semantically inane 
and dull conversations where it's like, was X a film or a TV episode? Like, I, I, I like it's so tempting. Like, was Cracker, you know, TV films? Was Columbo a series of films? Yeah, it's very easy to get into that. So I don't want to get into that. Um, but still, I do find it so interesting the different forms TV exists in. Like, uh, I know Gig and I discussed that A Christmas Carol 2019 show. Uh, and that was broadcast in different ways. In some places, it was broadcast as a big fat film all in one. And then in other places, it was broadcast as separate episodes. A show I really love, Peter Harness's War of the Worlds adaptation. In some places, it was broadcast as three episodes. And in others, without any cuts, it was broadcast as two episodes, just a different structural shape. And then like Luther, The Fallen Sun is going to be a film in cinemas. Yeah, but more on Netflix. And we're just getting all these little crossovers where the form is kind of breaking down in interesting different ways. And when he brings up Dickens and like serials, that's something now, like if I read something by like Dostoevsky or by Dickens, it's in the shape of a novel. Like literally it's in the shape of a Penguin Classics novel or whatever. But what is it exactly? Because it wasn't published as one big text. Like a lot of people will read it this way these days, but it didn't. It came out serialized, you know, across successive publications of magazines or journals or whatever and once you know that I think some parts of it make more sense like oh is that why Dickens (laughs) writes so much or is that why this bit is repeating here why am I getting this re-established to me now like I feel like the same thing is happening with TV like when people binge it that if you binge all four episodes of Luther season five in one row you're going to have a different experience like I the same day I finished Luther season four I started Luther season five which, you know, were years apart in reality. But to me, that's kind of woven them together in a form that they didn't exist the way they were broadcast in. So I think I'm always wary of getting too uh, uninteresting with those kinds of talks. But I think Neil Cross is similar to us three in that he finds all that kind of form stuff very interesting in how it affects uh, the experience of the reader or the viewer. It is fascinating. And unless you're um, inclined to... um, (laughs) dedicate your time uh, in such a way that you watch something in the order that it was broadcast in the way that mm. it's broadcast. So say if you if you were to watch season one of Luther week by week and then leave it alone for two years and come back to Luther, if if you, if you were somebody who was dedicated enough to do something like that, then you would have the experience that it was, um, I don't want to say the word meant to be uh, consumed because uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily something that was intentional in, in the way that, for example, Happy, Happy Valley season three left it for six years as an intentional story thing. Maybe um, you, you could say more with things like Luther that the two, three, four year gaps are to, are to do with production issues than uh, the, the story intent. But um, certainly the way that it was originally produced and originally consumed by the people that saw it for the first time. Um, and that has resulted in in me having seen the original broadcasting of the show, experiencing seasons in a very different way i've i've also now got uh, a similar experience to unio with um season four and five of luther where i see them as linked in a way that i didn't previously uh because i have seen them in a in in close succession and because i now recognize the um the 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 the, the connections that were being drawn uh, mm. and the foundations of season five that were being laid in, in season four i do see them as as one uh almost cohesive entity um so you're i think simply uh inherently to media you will consume um things that uh you will consume things differently retroactively than how they were originally yeah uh published let's say a kid these days 
starts to watch, I don't know, Doctor Who series one, and let's say they do Tyler's idea of they space it out a week by week, so they try and approximate the experience. That's all well and good, but Tony Blair isn't the Prime Minister anymore. You know what I mean? And Britney Spears isn't in the charts anymore. And so there's all these little things that you just cannot replicate. And that's just, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing with how stories age that I can't, without, you know, doing my own research and whatnot, I can't know, was cross commenting on a certain thing in the papers at the time. It's hard for me to know that from a different country, you know, and from a different time now I'm watching them. And I think it's just a consequence of how stories age. And sometimes that leads to new and interesting things, uh, really them being kind of, disassociated from their originating times but it's all a lovely ball of sometimes interesting sometimes boring complexity yeah absolutely and, that, and that's and that's inherent to literature isn't it that's that's something that you know we we as as um contemporary readers will, will read herodotus differently to the to, to the way that he mm, was of course published and and ovid differently and shakespeare differently to the way that it was originally performed and be, just by nature of um as I said, uh, reading or consuming things retroactively. Well, kind of on that note of uh, aggrandizing talk about literature that we're engaging in, uh, the, the article says to Cross, why don't more novelists cross over to the screen? And Cross says it's because of novelist ego. He says, when screenplays are at their best, the writer is invisible. You've got to be content with that. Even if you're David Simon, that's the wire showrunner, you're still overshadowed by Stringer Bell. That's Idris Elba's character. You're part of a large corporate effort to make a thing rather than having your name in gold embossed type on the front cover. Most novelists are too encumbered by this notion that they have something important to say. I'm dancing around the fact that most novelists are scum. If I was stuck in a lift, I'd rather be with a bunch of screenwriters than a bunch of novelists. Most novelists are carping, self-obsessed with a bunch of screenwriters it's like easy company in band of brothers you just sit in that elevator and swap war stories for hours holy shit okay (laughs) nice sure okay uh i I wonder whether this is a this is a personal thing whether cross as an individual has just had some had some bad run-ins with with um with fellow novelists rather than than this being a fact of life you know, it's fascinating to hear that from someone who has written a novel and has also you know, written TV as well. I think that many, yeah. The, the the I guess like the difference between the professions as he characterises it here is that the screenwriter is by nature someone who works with a great variety of many people. You know, they are part of a huge team, and the novelist. I mean, the form of the novel is all I mean, as we conceive about it as we conceive it, is all of one person just putting their thoughts down. Like, there is almost something narcissistic about the novel form, yeah. like, as we currently think about it. Like, it is just one person's brain, like, stream of consciousness almost. Like, an, an entire world of paper created by one, like, god figure. Rather than in TV, where you give your scripts to other people, and they take it and they put their own things into it. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it's probably a bit unkind to just stereotype all novelists or all screenwriters one way or the other. But it is interesting that, like... I think for someone to have like both experience in both fields and to say that maybe he prefers like the screenwriting world purely because it is not all about him. Like he feels like there is a degree of like trust and mutual cooperation in letting other people like add their like uh, add their interpretations. And yeah, I mean that that kind of maybe it says a lot about him as a writer. On that ego front, uh, what he says next ties directly into that. So the in- the interview starts talking about this series he's doing for the American NBC network called Crossbones, a big pirate show, uh, which Cross took on the role of showrunner for that. 
And he named it after himself. <laughs> Crossbones, yeah. It was a big budget five-month shoot. Going to be honest, I've never heard of this show before. Uh, is that my own ignorance? I, I've never heard of it either. No, I've not heard of it either. John Malkovich was starring in it, but so I don't know how this show went. Anyway, Cross says of being a showrunner, I took a certain English reticence to the role. I knew I was showrunner, but it took a few weeks to realize quite what that means in the States. You're the person where the buck stops at every level. You're the boss. And that was liberating and terrifying. Coped with it by happily admitting that I was massively unqualified to take those decisions. But that's how you learn by consulting with people who know what they're doing. That, yeah, I, this whole collaborative thing is very clear with him. That's, that's, I, I respect that. I, 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 perfect the, I, I uh, respect the humility. He talks, this kind of configures back around Doctor Who, which of course uh, really led the showrunner role, at least in terms of uh, uh, being identified that way in the United Kingdom. Uh, the showrunner role, Russell T. Davis with Doctor Who was a huge, huge force with that. He, Cross says, the position of showrunner is much to the benefit of television when he's asked about the showrunner role becoming more to the fore in British TV. Cross says, because when a writer develops a show and it's filtered through another producer there's a pressure for a reversion to the mean. Sidebar, uh, Gig and I, when we recently talked about uh, Disney Plus and how their shows don't have showrunners, instead they have that separation between writer and producer in our uh, unneeded RTD conversation. That's, yeah, that's what Cross is talking about there. Anyway, back to Cross. He says, with something truly extraordinary that varies from the norm in any number of ways, there's going to be a tendency to push it back into what's more mainstream, more expected. Uh, and that's that's what I harp on about why I love with Doctor Who that it's so utterly centralised into... Of course, many people are hugely important to the maker of Doctor Who. There's all sorts of producers and stars and the composers and the directors and all sorts of crew members that are hugely, hugely important to the show. But the show is still abnormally in both UK and I think American television as well. It's abnormally configured around the reign of singular people, singular men. Uh, and I love that because I think it's so interesting to see kind of the artor super authorial vision of like it's too much for any one man to handle which is kind of the interesting thing with doc with how doctor who was ran but i think a lot of it is what neil cross is articulating quite well there that when you have one person with so much crazy power and so much this is filtering through me and i get to decide how this is filtered through it really lets a kind of purity and clarity of vision which i find really uh intoxicating what do you guys think of the benefits he's talking about there I think in some cases it doesn't necessarily have to be like the writer because I think in the case of Luther, like what's filtering through is not just Cross's vision but also Idris Elba's as the star. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think it's all about like having the people who are at the heart of it are the ones who have the the power. I think that's where you get like the the clarity of vision that you talk about. I think as, as long as that's there, then you're probably going to get something quite good, provided they know what they're doing, of course, and have good ideas. <laughs> Cross closes that interview just talking about the difference between writing film scripts and tv scripts which he says in feature films you have no rights at all but that's how it should be it's a director's medium if you accept the necessary condition that a film script is not there as an expression of your the writer's vision it's just you telling a story as well as you possibly can for the director to interpret according to his or her vision it becomes weirdly liberating end quote i think that's huge why uh, TV showrunner Damon Lindelof, uh, you know, Watchmen, Lost the Leftovers in particular, his films get a lot of shit 
people are like, this is a phenomenally bad script for a film. A lot of people will say, maybe with a lot of hyperbole, depending on your opinion. But how can his shows be good if his movies are bad? And it's just, it's, it's not a comparable job at all. I know it says writer, you know, in both credits, but writing a film, it's like Cross is saying, it's not you giving something to the audience, it's you give something to the director and then they make the film as they will. Whereas writer is the key role in TV and directors are the ones, you know, more subsumed to the TV machinery. In most cases, you know, there's pushback on that. There's, there's change with that with some things like uh, True Detective Series 1 and there's other shows where directors get abnormal amounts of power. But generally, TV is the writer medium, film is the director medium, Cross finds that liberating. I think that's interesting. Although in the case of the Luther film, the director is someone who worked on Luther as a TV show. Like, I think he directed some of, yeah, yeah. It's that blurry lines as well again, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. That's also, I'm not unsympathetic to when people like say Columbo is a series of films or whatever, because I get what they mean, but it's still subsumed to it was produced like TV, even though it's kind of received as a film in some ways. Uh, Yeah, very different machinery. There's another interview. This is the last thing I have to talk about. This interview is interesting. It's, it predates Luther. It's from 2009. So it's in more the novelist days of Neil Cross. Well, it's in the spooks days. And there's a couple of things here I just think are relevant to our conversation. So Cross says, when his show Spooks is screening, well, the, the article says, when Spooks is screening, recruitment for the British Security Service, MI5, goes up. <laughs> Neil Cross says, but when we kill a character, recruitment dips enormously, and we kill people consistently, says Cross, smiling. I think I have the highest hit rate. We were talking about how Luther sheds characters. I just think it's interesting to see Cross back many years ago talking about he enjoys killing off characters and the effect that that has. That's a quite fascinating, fascinating relationship between the writer... And the, the, the effect that that has on national security. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 quite, quite, that's quite a huge... Um, a thing to toy with, isn't it? Yeah, I think it shows consciousness of his role as almost like a quasi-propagandist, but and how it can go one way or the other. Mm. Like when you're telling stories about like law enforcement and people who are in power, kind of making them into the heroes or the villains or the people who die. You know, in the way the, 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 that weird kind of psychic effect that mass media storytelling has on the populace. I think, yeah. So, so I think it's something something interesting to take into account when thinking about Cross as a Luther writer and when he talks about when he's writing about. Uh, law enforcement and the death penalty and all that shit like I think he's and how he presents the police as this, this corrupt force I think he's maybe aware that his writing doesn't necessarily just have a positive effect on like say security state or whatever maybe it, it also maybe uh, can be like sort of discouraging towards it or like you can go both ways he's not just like some uncritical propagandist I think that's what season three is I think um, season one of Luther is uh quite heavy propaganda a lot of the time. Um, but I wouldn't call season three that at all. In fact, I would say that, um, you know, we were talking about earlier about the, the insanity of the, the famed detective John Luther saving a paedophile and, and going to the extreme of being beaten up uh, to do so. So, uh, I, um, yeah, he, he's not, like you say, he's not like a hard and fast um, cop lover or anything. Yeah, so the article talks about... So Neil Cross was the head writer, like we've said, for Spooks, the spy, drama, espionage, uh, homegrown terrorism type stuff, that sort of show. So with Spooks, that spy drama, espionage show, Cross, that 
Cross was the head writer on for a while. He had to anticipate world events to keep the series feeling uh, contemporary, which is interesting because we've talked about how Luther sometimes... Uh, well, sometimes it does, but it more feels a bit unmoored from reality, I think, in some ways. Intentionally, I think, trying to be less political in some ways. So to engage with the world for spooks, it says cross Googles in bizarre and sometimes nasty places uh, with the assumption that the worldwide cyber snooping system often picks him up. Cross is solitary and domestic, a novelist who thinks most novelists are scummy people, a fond dad who has the name of his Kiwi wife tattooed on his inner left wrist. He hasn't made many New Zealand friends in his years here. If you do my job, Cross says, it's almost impossible to ever meet anybody because I never leave the house. I'm almost certain my email is monitored. (laughs) It would be astonishing if it wasn't. My internet searches include how to make dirty weapons, how to weaponize viruses, assassination techniques, and not just casual surfing, but deep, 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 you know. For one potential episode, I spent about... (laughs) I I spent about three days looking at very, very racist websites. (laughs) So there's racism, there's nuclear technology, there's dirty bombs, vile, vile, vile stuff, all coming into this little house in Crofton Downs. If this guy ever leaves the house, we're in serious trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I think earlier, Tyler, you and I were talking about how across, in some ways... And he's self-aware about this. He seems like a very scared man in a lot of ways. I think it's interesting to hear him speak to that kind of thing here. <laughs> yeah, he's got, um, he's, he's got a, uh, I think, quite open um, anxiety about, about many different facets of life. And they, they, that bleeds through in Luther in many ways, and it, and it helps to um, prop up the show. Uh, I think back to the Satanic Panic conversation we had in... Uh, season one. I think that description of Cross that you kind of went over, it kind of makes him sound like he'd be one of the killers in Luther. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes the killers in Luther feel a bit like externalizations or not not self-inserts of Cross, but kind of some element of like Cross's sort of fascination with like the, the dark, all the dark shit that he Googles and just the way that he, you know, hides himself away. You know, you have the, the killers in series two who are kind of like secreted away from the world. I think, I think Cross is kind of, he embodies that to a certain degree. Like he's putting that weird element of himself in the show as these strange kind of kind of geeky, nerdy or kind of bizarre figures with these strange compulsions. Series three has that stuff with uh, that dead victim's Barnaby's daughter's face like photoshopped onto like obscene materials as well. There's a lot of stuff here that is clearly drawn from cross finding yeah, terrible stuff online. Even like the paedophile in this series and how he's like like a, an academic paedophile who yeah. advocates for, you know, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a morbidly accurate like characterization drawn straight from real life. So, and yeah. it's, you know, that's why it's, it's kind of what's so fascinating. Like in some ways, it's very easy to just take all the darkest shit from the internet and just put it into your fiction. But at the same time, it's part of the tone of Luther as a show, just sort of um, part of the existential kind of chaos that the show depicts and it's just part of the show's identity really there's a couple of anecdotes in this article i wanted you guys to hear so the article reads spooks is about a group of mi5 agents based in a secure set of london offices known as the grid among the show's advisors are retired mi5 officers as well as former spooks from the cia and the kgb but cross quote very rarely makes use of them 
Because the amount of research I've done, I don't trust the word of spies. <laughs> and what I want to know from these advisors isn't what they're going to tell me, end of quote. <laughs> Here we go. Series 7 was very harsh on the Russians, and Cross remembers a first read-through with the cast on episode 1. Quote, I'd done a search and found this stuff that Karl Marx had said about the Russians, something about the Russian beast never slumbering, and it's avariciousness. And this was going on and on, and I just heard a voice behind me going, this is all bullshit. It was an ex-KGB man, (laughs) a guy in a black three-button suit with a black polo neck behind it, dark hair swept back. Nobody in the history of the world has looked more like an ex-KGB agent. And he sat at the back, about two feet away. After that, I avoided him. I shifted to the other side of the room. <laughs> this, this, this reminds me of um, Michael Imperioli's anecdote about James Gandolfini getting a phone call from a mobster. Yes. Saying, uh, you know, we, we, lo- we, we, we love what you're doing, but uh, the Don doesn't wear shorts and hangs up. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the next one is similar to that. It's another peculiar incident happened at a meeting in a new building of Kudos, the producers. They were there in the glass-fronted boardroom with coffee, cake, and muffins, ready to start discussing storylines for a new series of spooks when the executive producer's phone went. Uncharacteristically, she took the call and hurried out, returning 10 minutes later to explain to the baffled production team that MI5 had been on the line to discuss a potential legal issue over Spooks' use of the title MI5 on American TV. Cross and the others didn't think the call was a coincidence. They were convinced the security services were ringing just to say, we're listening. It was a very strange moment. So he thinks he's being spied on as he's uh, writing his spy show. When when you're um, touching on on matters such as, as what Cross was touching on with uh, MI5 and national security and, and international relations and things, of course they're watching. And, and, and of course they're considering the impact that it's having on the public and international relations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just pretty obvious. Like, you're making a like a whole epic TV drama about this shit. Like, of course you're going to... You, you're embroiling yourself in it. You, you can hardly complain <laughs> when they, like, come and sort of tap you on the shoulder. Like, that's that's the game you've entered into, sort of turning these, uh, these guys into drama. This... He talks for Islam a while on that article, but then at this later bit, uh, maybe connects to some of the class stuff we've talked about with Luther. He says, when he's talking about uh, the kinds of things MI5 are scared of, uh, Cross says, you're going to see the birth of all kinds of radical groups. One of the things MI5 fears most of all is a resurgent revolutionary middle class, middle class radicalism. That would be an interesting story to tell. Uh, and I guess some of the Marwood stuff is maybe playing around, you know, with societal uprising and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure I, I agree with him. There's, <laughs> there's much, there's much um, value in a, in a middle-class liberal uprising. What are they really going to do? But there's there's certainly some interesting drama to pick out in it, I guess. Perhaps the issue is not so much that, like, oh, what are all those dangerous posh, like, middle-class people? Maybe the issue is more the idea of middle-class becoming sympathetic with, like, the working class and then being forming, like, a united front. Yeah, g- g- gaining gaining some sort of class consciousness, yeah. Then that's really, yeah, yeah. Then then, then that becomes quite, a, like, an imposing presence. Mm. Well, Tyler, you're an England man. You're in England all the time. Uh 
some of this discrepancy might come from what comes next in the article, which says Cross worries that he will lose touch with his British audience, even though he goes back to Britain four or five times a year. So he builds a British bubble, listening to Radio 4 all day, reading the British press online, looking at what the fans say about his show. It's a strange life. I never quite feel at home either in Britain or here in New Zealand. I mean, the only place I feel at home is at home in my house. The British bubble thing, I think, is interesting. Yeah, I I was going to say, I think that um, in building himself a a, a bubble of um, his own fantasy Britain, he's he's helped to uh, usher forth his his um, his London Gotham City, uh, which isn't quite real London, uh, but also is. It, it's it's certain. It's a very believable uh, depiction of London in the way that other TV shows don't um, either either don't get right or don't choose to depict. Um, so I, I know for for certain that um, Cross understands London. Um, the, the, the murkier parts of it and the and the, the, ver- the different boroughs of it uh, in in a way that maybe other writers don't or haven't haven't utilised. Um, but the fact that he doesn't live in the country and, and that he uh, receives all of his information through uh, the internet and radio is is quite interesting because I, I think it helps to buffer his um, comic book vision of what that London could be in its. Uh, um, Shank, Shank has that line, doesn't he? Um, Depravity is not in short supply in this city, mm. and that's that's what um, that's what Luther London is. Yeah, it's kind of the media construct rather than necessarily the geographical place, like the physical, like you know, soil or like concrete of the area. It's like it's the ideas that are flying around and sort of get synthesised into this uh, kind of fictitious London. Mm. Cross goes on to say, writing is a neurotic compulsion. And if he doesn't write, he gets irritable and restless. Writers tend to be solitary anyway, he thinks, although in his case, the tendency may have been stiffened by the long period of bullying he suffered as an English child in a Scottish school. The myth of the alcoholic writer is actually a function of these solitary people having to find some confidence to mix in public and only being able to do it while drunk. It was certainly true of me. I drank very heavily when I was forced to not be solitary. That was when he worked in the sales division of a large British publisher. After being expelled from school, he spent years on the dole. Then he went to university and studied literature, doing undergraduate and postgraduate theses on the American novelist Joseph Heller, who was his hero. I even changed my middle name to Yasarian. It's on my passport. He joined the publishing house so he could meet writers. He was shattered by their banality and nastiness. That explains his hatred of novelists then, I guess. He, he had that experience. He was looking up to them so much. Yeah, and, and I suppose in, in a sense, he, he's always seen these people as coming from a different world than him. And then, and then, he, then he meets them and in many cases they're dicks. And that's, that's quite a, a, shatter, a reality shattering thing to happen in my experience. He says he turned his novel Always the Sun uh, in 2004 into a screenplay. His agent pushed it around and two big production houses ended up bidding for it. That, in turn, led to the invitation to join the Spooks writing team. Yes, he says, it sounds like a fairy tale. He and Nadja, his wife, brought their two sons to New Zealand six years ago after getting sick of London, its traffic, its lack of green spaces, its clamour. Remember, this article is from 2009, so 2009, takeaway six. A year after September 11, there was still a constant anxiety about terrorist attack. 
It's all very different in Crofton Downs, where he lives. Cross describes himself as, drumroll, as a libertarian leftist. Okay. (laughs) Of course he does. And is bothered by the state's intrusion on our lives. The electronic surveillance network system that links New Zealand with the United States and Britain scoops masses of information every second from our emails and other communications is the real tie that binds Wellington and Washington, he says, because New Zealand is the main listening station for the South Pacific. I love the mouse that roared thing, the way New Zealand stopped American warships, but there's very little strategic interest down here, so there's no reason for American nuclear vessels. If New Zealand had decided to abandon that shared security system, he suggests the fight with the US would have been far more serious. So how does a left-winger feel about writing a spy show that acts as unofficial and unpaid recruitment for MI5? You know, Cross says, I've never really thought about it. (laughs) But I often made the joke amongst the team that we were a left-wing team making a right-wing show. He reconsiders and changes right-wing to conservative. In any case, Spooks isn't a political platform of mine. MI5, he notes, says on its website that it never engages in assassinations. Cross doesn't believe this. There is documentary evidence that an IRA enforcer, the man who tortured and killed supposed informants, was a British SAS man under deep cover. He systematically killed loyal IRA terrorists. Spooks shows the spies killing people. In one episode, they let off a bomb in Tehran, but the writers strive to keep the audience's sympathy for their characters. In that episode, quote, we showed how much they didn't want to do it and how great the threat to Britain was had they not done it. That's the kind of choice these people have to make in real life. And not everybody in that kind of job likes what they have to do. So there's a lot of political explication from Cross there. Any thoughts on all that? I think he does kind of tip his hand a bit. Bear in mind, it's from a long time ago as well, 2009. But yeah, Tyler, what do you think? I, I can I can sympathise with uh, the need to... Um, I mean, Spooks at this stage in his life, and, and even now, it, it's, it's the thing that made him. So at this stage in his life, it's his lifeline. And I understand the need to, um, to apply... Uh, such a nuance to your career that you can um, excuse its uh, shortcomings, its moral shortcomings. Um, I think that maybe the reason that he suggests, I don't believe for a second that he never thought about the yeah. propagandistic elements of the show. I do not believe that for a second. I, th- I think the reality is that he chooses not to think about these things and uh, perhaps distances himself from uh, ideology as a grown man because of what his job at the time was Um, because maybe had he thought a bit more deeply about what he was doing with spooks, he would have had to have stepped away from it. Um, And I do, I also understand that the reality of uh, working in such a thing as the British secret service is also a nuanced um, experience and and that you do have to uh, out of, out of a sense of duty, um, do things that you that you think aren't necessarily appropriate. I'm not, you know, I'm not completely blind to. I, I'm not John Luther. I don't think everything is as clear cut as and binary as good and evil. Um, but I think that there is. I get a sense from that interview of a intentional disconnect from reality 
by Cross. I think um, when he talks about uh, in that bit about maintaining sympathy for the characters and how well we we always make sure to show that they don't really want to do it when they do it anyway. You know? They're sad about it after they've killed people and such. And um, but you know they have to because the threat is too great and so on. I think um, I think what that inherently is is that it is in. I think it is inherently a way of thinking about it that stops at the level of personal responsibility. And because if you aren't interrogating things on the question of like, well, why not in the sense of like, are they good or bad people for doing it? But is the actual over overarching institutional structure that leads this to become like the reality, like right or wrong or whatever. Like I think if you aren't thinking about on that higher level, then you are inherently going to be writing something conservative. Like even if you are like conceiving yourself as like, Oh yeah, we're, we're leftist or whatever, we're giving it the left-wing take or we don't really care about that. I think one way or the other, like it's the the, the political lean comes from almost like the, the structure of just like the procedural structure, just like the heroic like enforcement official spy structure or whatever, where you can't actually, you can't really question the authority or like the underlying system or structure or whatever. The the reality of... of um of Cross's job at the time was that he was writing a, a show about uh, the British Security Service for the BBC. So the the um, by s- simply by its, the very nature of his job description, he was writing conservative content, and that is something that, as a man, he had to grapple with. Uh, so I can uh, fully sympathise with that, and I understand um, his reasoning for what I perceive to be a disconnect from political ideologies but i think there are some writers who are capable of doing both um i think of um uh we, we will I, I think be discussing cracker at some point so i won't um of course yeah uh, i won't yeah i won't divulge too much here but i think that jimmy mcgovern is, is a is a man who's capable of having the experience of um a left-wing uh, uh relatively far left-wing um but also quite um multifaceted uh creator uh, doing a job that is inherently um, conservative and establishment. I think that it just it's dependent on the type of man. It's the writer's burden. The type of writer, the type of person that you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, often sometimes the work doesn't necessarily tell you everything about the man. Like, sometimes it can be the other way around. You have a show like The Wire, which goes to such lengths to institutionally deconstruct all the systems that lead to you know, the corruption of Baltimore. And then you have, like, the writer David Simon, who's, like, this complete milk toast, like, <laughs> you know, centrist figure who's constantly getting into, like, beefs on Twitter. You know, it's it's like, yeah, you, you, you can't infer everything about the creator from the work. Well, Cross did write a memoir in 2005. I very recently uh, got a copy of called Heartland. So... If any work you can conflate with a man, it's a memoir. So I'm looking forward to reading that and getting more uh, insight into who he is as a man and how he thinks. But yeah, I just thought these, well, oldish interviews now were a really interesting insight onto him, especially the stuff in this series. Yeah. Do we have any more thoughts on Cross's stuff there? Well, I just think um, such of a big element in how Luther and his team like catch the killers and stuff is that sense of surveillance being able to track mm. phones and like look at everything and the cameras and everything so in, in a way the things that maybe cross says he's like suspicious of like the constant surveillance and stuff are things that become tools of almost sort of quasi heroism in yeah. the police procedural format so again it's another case of him kind of working with the things that make him personally kind of uneasy a little random series three note just on my mind is Back in our series one discussion, I know Tyler, you and I were 
surprised by that like series one minisode on iPlayer that showed Schenk like pouring vodka into his coffee or something like his drink during the day, his hot drink, uh, because we didn't really read Schenk as an alcoholic or anything like that. And so I thought that was just like a maybe improvised moment from the actor or something just for that little minisode or throughout series one and two. But then in series three, we get in one of these episodes uh, the day after Ripley and Luther have their scrap in the office, uh, we see Shank take a drink from a flask uh, in broad daylight at the scene of a crime. And yeah, it was a bad crime and everything, but I'm sure he's seen worse before. So I was just surprised uh, to see, I guess, <laughs> the Minnesota's canon, as you could say. Uh, Shank does like his alcohol. Interesting note there. I just think it's worth uh, noting, because we haven't really specifically said this point, that... Um we end on Southwark Bridge again with John and Alice, which is where it started. And uh, this um, lends credence to uh, your um, feeling about it, the, the show being over, the, 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 this cyclicality of um, the, the first meeting between John and Alice and the perhaps final one where they've, they've chosen their life. And you know, you know, the song's playing in the background, which uh, the, the line in the song is... Um, something about uh, but i've chosen now i've chosen to stay yeah yeah the song's called i'm never going to give you up it's that sort of thing <laughs> yeah uh, yeah exactly so um yeah it, it does work definitely as a as a cyclical ending to the show but i also think that yeah and and something that um idris elba picked up on and again this is something that we'll speak about in the next uh podcast because um the 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 album that he released was yes yeah uh released on the on the, the date of of season four episode one um but something that he picked up on in that album was the concept of bridges in luther and the idea of um characters moving from one side from one place to another and 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 uh what the bridge what the bridges symbolically represent um so i don't think it has to be uh final i think that the nature of, of a bridge is that uh, it comes out on two sides, and I don't think you um, have to end Luther where it ended in season three. And I think that what Cross chooses to do in season four and five are uh, fascinating uh, from a character perspective. Well said, Tyler. Yep, I don't have anything to add to that. That wraps us up for today, discussing Luther series three. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on Luther, this third series of Luther, those Neil Cross interviews we talked about towards the end stuff we had to say, anything we didn't have to say, let us know. We always love looking at the comments. And next up, Series 4, Series 5, Idris Elba's album, the comic relief skit on Luther. Lots of stuff next. Uh, That'll be an interesting one for sure. Thank you again for listening. Let us know your thoughts. Cheers.